This hearing of the Committee of Agriculture entitled Climate Change <clears throat> and the United States Agriculture and Forestry Sectors will now come to order. I want to welcome and thank everyone for joining this most important and timely and critical an extraordinarily necessary uh, hearing today. After a brief opening remarks, members will uh, receive testimony from today's witnesses, and then the hearing will be opened up to questions and discussions. Members will be recognized in order of seniority, alternating between majority and minority members, and in order of arrival for those members who have joined at us after the hearing was called to order. And as normal, when you are recognized, you will be asked to unmute your microphone and we'll have five minutes to ask your questions or make a statement. And if you are not speaking, I greatly ask that you remain muted in order to minimize the background noise. In order to get in as many questions as possible, the timer will uh, stay <clears throat> consistently visible on the screen to let you know how much time you have. And now, ladies and gentlemen, let me open this up with a few remarks uh, here myself. This is perhaps the single most important hearing that we must have right now because agriculture is our single most important industry overall, but especially right now because nobody, our farmers, our agricultural industry. They are more than any other entity or industry suffers more and benefits more from climate and weather. And I say it is our most important industry because of this. Agriculture is the food we eat, it is the water we drink. It is the clothes we wear, and it is our shelter. Now, folks, we can do without a lot of things, but we definitely can't do without food, water, clothing, the necessities. And we've lost too many of our farms because we moved too late to get the right information in about these weather patterns. And so I am so grateful for our committee, our staff that has assembled a wonderful panel. I'm so thrilled to be able to approach this issue with my partner and my friend, uh, Ranking Member Thompson. This is critical. And so I just want us to move with this with an open heart and an open mind open. and to know 
that the American people are watching us. It is agriculture that's at the point of the spear when it comes to climate change. And I'm so grateful for the talented members of this committee who are willing to take this issue on and provide the critical leadership to deal with climate change, to secure our food supply and save our farms. With that, I want to turn it over to the ranking member, uh, distinguished friend from Pennsylvania, uh, ranking member Thompson. Well, uh, good afternoon, everybody. And I'd like to thank the chairman for holding today's hearing and his flexibility due to the updated floor schedule. The, the impact of climate has on agriculture production and on our natural resources is an issue of great importance to all of us on the House Agriculture Committee. Working with us, uh, and Chairman, thank you for working with us on a mutually agreeable time that provides uh, for greater member participation. It, it's valued and very much appreciated. Now, I'd also like to thank the witnesses who juggled their schedules uh, to join us today uh, virtually, and I'd like to thank all our constituents and stakeholders who are joining us today virtually as, as well. Now, there's a saying I learned BC before Congress, if, if you're not at the table, you're probably on the menu. And for too long, the agriculture sector has been on the menu when it comes to climate. The hearing today begins to pull us up to the table. And I'd like to start my remarks by making a very clear position. The climate is changing. The Earth's temperature is rising. And I trust the science that globally industrial activity has contributed to the issue. Reducing global emissions is what we should be pursuing. It's the right thing to do. And it requires smart, prudent, and science-based policies. But the apocalyptic narrative of the world coming to an end within the decade, it's not evidence-based, and it's not supported by science. The self-proclaimed experts who continue to spout this impending doomsday scenario do nothing to advance the climate solutions discourse. They only cause unnecessary public angst and anxiety. It divides lawmakers when what we need is collaboration. Now, I imagine these climate grifters must rely on scare tactics to push their extreme agenda because it is burdensome, overreaching, and negatively affects jobs and rural economies, not to mention the likelihood these policies could actually result in higher global admissions. And I'll touch more on this in just a second. Just over a decade ago, Congress rejected the Waxman-Markey cap-and-trade. And for those who weren't around or need reminding, this legislation was a national energy tax. Estimates vary, but experts predicted under a cap-and-trade proposal, energy prices would increase as much as 125 percent. It was uh, predicted this policy would have resulted in American farm income to drop by $8 billion in 2012, $25 billion in 2024, and $50 billion in, 20, in 2035, decreases of 28, 60, and 94 percent, respectively. Now, this underscores the most troubling aspect of a national cap-and-trade system or other similar approaches, which is that 40 to 60 million acres of land would have 
would likely have to shift from crop production and planted to trees. It is worth noting, largely due to the innovations and free market principles, the United States has reduced emissions comparable to, if not better than, what Waxman-Markey called for in its 10 out-year reduction targets. Equally important, because it was not through government prescriptive measures, energy costs on average have come down. With Waxman-Markey, energy prices would have skyrocketed. When Waxman-Markey failed, the Obama EPA chose a different route and pursued regulations to reduce emissions from the electricity sector known as the Clean Power Plan. Fortunately, that was stopped by the courts and eventually the Trump EPA. Good thing, too. The government-prescriptive Obama Clean Power Plan sought to reduce emissions 32 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. Without this regulation and because of innovation and the market, power sector emissions hit that 32 percent reduction mark more than a decade sooner in 2019 without the utility bill increases that would have come with the Clean Power Plan. Now, at a time when energy prices have decreased and manufacturing has strengthened, the United States has led the world in reducing emissions. We have reduced carbon emissions more than the next 12 emission-reducing nations combined. Now, let me quote the head of the International Energy Agency. Quote, in the last 10 years, the emissions reductions in the United States has been the largest in the history of energy. This is huge decline of emissions, end quotes. Now, the question isn't whether or not climate change is real. The question is not whether or not to reduce emissions. The question is how to best approach it. And just this past Congress, Democrats created a Select Committee on Climate Crisis, which used nearly an entire Congress only to deliver a staff report that simply rebranded cap-and-trade in the Green New Deal. Now, these climate approaches aim to uproot the, the basic underpinnings of our farming, manufacturing, energy, and transportation systems, and requires changes for marginal or unknown benefits, which would have significant implications for the profitability of U.S. agriculture and the U.S. economy, and specifically the rural economy. More so, these recommendations can negatively impact food abundance and increase food prices, all while displacing U.S. production with that of less efficient, more carbon-intensive foreign producers, leading to an increase in global emissions. Now, these proposals are in direct conflict with the bipartisan principle that on-farm conservation should be locally led, voluntary, and incentive-based. Principles that this committee has put forward uh, and, and really have been led by. Now, I truly believe our approach to overcoming this issue must favor pro-growth solutions over burdensome over-regulations. Innovation and research must be at the forefront of our solutions. As a matter of fact, there's been a lot of talk about legislation or executive action to address climate change. But I believe many of these approaches are a solution in search of a problem. If we really want to reduce global emissions, hindering U.S. production is the opposite of what we should be doing. We should be taking steps to ensure the global competitiveness of our farmers. Now, though often overlooked, the 2018 Farm Bill is arguably the greenest farm bill ever. And the Farm Bill is a climate bill. Some may scoff at that assertion, but let's talk about that bill. The Farm Bill's voluntary programs help farmers implement new practices that sequester carbon, reduce emissions, and adopt more energy-efficient farming practices. These programs have grown significantly in size and scope over the past two decades, providing $6 billion a year to farmers, ranchers, and forestry owners to implement practices like soil health practices, 
such as cover crops and no-till, that we can help draw down the carbon and store it in the soil. The current conservation delivery system is the gold standard of the world. Our hardworking NRCS field staff, along with conservation districts, are delivering these benefits not only to farmers but to the rural communities. I also believe that the private sector can play a role in addressing the climate crisis. Companies like Land O'Lakes are leading in conservation finance, converting methane into energy, and working on private carbon markets. Now, let me state for the record, I, I support uh, private ecosystem markets as long as those markets are focused on benefits to the producers. I do not think the government should be intervening in those markets, and I hope we can concentrate more on proven solutions. I hope all of us can agree that a much greater expansion and more rapid deployment of high-quality uh, high broadband connectivity is essential in this regard. It's essential for our rural communities, and it's essential to data-driven climate solutions. Broadband isn't just needed in our homes, it's desperately needed on our farms as well. Agriculture is science, it's technology, it's innovation. The demands of a 21st century farm economy and economically viable uh, climate solutions depends on reliable connectivity. Now, thanks to innovations in agriculture technologies, farmers are not the only uh, conserving resources. They're, they're doing it, not only conserving resources, they're doing it while producing more food, more fiber, and more feed. Productivity relative to resource use for agriculture is up a whopping 280% in the United States since the 1940s, while total farm inputs are mostly unchanged during this time period. Now, I believe this is something that isn't talked about enough. U.S. producers are the shining star when it comes to resiliency and sustainability. U.S. producers are the answer to reducing global emissions, not the problem, as so many activists would have you believe. However, without high-speed internet connectivity at both the farmhouse and the field, many of these new technologies that have helped create these efficiencies will never be realized to their fullest potential. Continuing to build on the conservation success of American farmers will reap additional emission benefits and increase U.S. farming's competitive advantage globally. The men and women who farm our lands are the original stewards of, of that land. They, um, the left will give them no credit for all the advancements they've made in protecting our natural resources. The wrong approach with burdensome regulations or policies that dramatically increase costs will harm rural economics, while displacing U.S. production with that of less efficient foreign producers, leading to an increase in global greenhouse gas emissions. The question we have to ask ourselves, who do, who do we want supplying the world agriculture products? Is it the most efficient, low-emission producer that creates jobs in America, or the highest-emitting sources that create jobs overseas? If you care about the American farmer, as well as addressing climate, the answer should be obvious. Again, Mr. Chairman, thank you so much for holding this hearing today. I know you believe, as I do, that our farmers and ranchers can be the can uh, uh, can be part of the solution to the uh, to the climate issues. Thanks you. Thank you again to our witnesses, and I yield back. Well, thank you, Ranking Member uh, Thompson. The chair would request that other members submit their opening statements for the record so that we can move on and begin to hear from our wonderful uh, panel. Once again, I would like to welcome all of our witnesses and thank you for being here today for this historic and very, very critical hearing. First, 
we welcome Mr. Jim Cantery. Mr. Cantery is a senior meteorologist for the Weather Channel who has worked as a renowned forecaster for more than 30 years, forecasting the nation's weather day-to-day -day and reporting live from the field on severe weather events. He has also helped produce documentaries on meteorology, uh, broadcasting and historic storms. Mr. Cantoree holds an American Meteorological Society television seat of approval and received an Emmy Award in 2019 for his work on the Weather Channel's immersive mixed reality storytelling. Our next witness is Miss Pamela Knox. Miss Knox is the director of the University of Georgia's Weather Network, as well as an agricultural climatologist. Excuse me, I am convinced I can get that last word right. Agricultural climatologist for the University of Georgia in the Department of Crop and Soil Science. She provides outreach and education on climate and its effect on crops and livestock in the southern United States. Ms. Knox also serves on the technical advisory boards of the Southeast Regional Climate Center or at NOAA and the Southeast Region's Climate Hub at USDA. Our third witness today, who I'm also so pleased to be able to invite and join us, is my good friend, President Zippy Duvall. Zippy is president of the American Farm Bureau Federation. Mr. Duvall has served as president of Farm Bureau since 2016, and he is a third-generation farmer from Georgia. He owns a beef cow herd, raises broiler chickens, and grows hay. Prior to serving uh, as the AFBF president, he was president of the Georgia Farm Bureau and served on Farm Bureau's Board of Directors, a gentleman I have had the privilege of working with for a number of years, even during my years in the Georgia State Senate. Next, we will hear from Mr. Gabe Brown. Mr. Brown operates Brown's Ranch for his, with his wife, Shelley, and son, Paul. Brown's Ranch is a diversified 5,000-acre farm and ranch near Bismarck, North Dakota, with a variety of cash crops, multi-species cover crops, and livestock that utilize grazing and no-till cropping systems. He is also a partner in the agricultural consulting company, 
named Understanding Ag. Our fifth and final witness today, we are pleased to welcome Mr. Michael Schellenberger. Mr. Schellenberger is the founder and president of Environmental Progress. He is an environmentalist journalist and the author of several books, including the recently published book, Apocalypse Never. Mr. Schellenberg was the co-founder and president of the Breakthrough Institute. What a panel, and we are anxious to hear from you. We will now proceed to hear, uh, with our hearing and the testimony. Uh, each will have five minutes. Uh, the time should be visible to you on your uh, screen and will count uh, down to zero, at which point your time will have expired. Uh, Mr. Cantoree, please begin now. Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, and distinguished members of the committee, good afternoon. I am Jim Cantori, and I'm a meteorologist for the Weather Channel Television Network. I have been a weather forecaster for almost 35 years. I'm here today on behalf of the Weather Channel to testify about the increasing impacts of climate change on the agricultural and rural communities of the United States, as well as the impact on the entire U.S. population. Over the past several decades, scientists from all over the world have been studying changes in the Earth's atmosphere and weather patterns. Recent weather observations are confirming what computer models and scientific theory conclude. For one, climate is warming due to an increase of greenhouse gases, especially carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Number two, the changes are overwhelmingly caused by humans. Number three, there is a definite link between increasingly extreme weather and a warming planet. Carbon dioxide in our atmosphere has been steadily increasing, and in response, so have the temperatures. Since 1880, the average global temperature has been increasing at a rate of 0.14 degrees Fahrenheit per decade. However, since 1981, the increase is more than twice that rate. These numbers may seem small, but much like our body temperature, the Earth's temperature is remarkably stable. Simply put, the planet has a fever, and it's getting worse. The statistics are alarming. The last seven years have been the warmest on record. Ice sheets and glaciers worldwide are melting and draining water into the ocean, raising the sea level. In New York City, the ocean sits roughly a foot higher than when the Empire State Building was built in 1930. By the end of the century, the global average sea level will likely be over a foot higher than it is today. But future pathways with high greenhouse gas emissions could raise those seas by over three feet by 2100. Flooding will be a daily occurrence with each high tide along the eastern seaboard and Gulf Coast. We already see this in our country on sunny days in places like Miami, Florida and Charleston, South Carolina. Extreme temperatures and prolonged drought are increasing the risk of water shortages and wildfires over the western U.S. Extreme rainfall events are on the rise, increasing the chances for more serious flash flooding. And the strongest hurricanes are getting stronger and potentially slowing down. The costs are staggering. 
billion dollar disasters are on the rise. And we've got a short video to take a look at one from last year that hit farmers particularly hard. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, there were a record 22 billion dollar weather and climate disasters in 2020, with total losses reaching 95 billion dollars. Families and communities continue to suffer from the significant economic consequences of these disasters. And last August, we saw one of the costliest severe thunderstorms in U.S. history deliver a crushing blow to farmers in America's heartland. A derecho, or long-lasting line of thunderstorms with damaging winds. Of the hundreds of miles hit by the storm, more than 10 million acres were corn and soybean crops in western Iowa farmland that was already stressed from extreme drought. Oftentimes, farmers are dealing with the aftermath of one event while they prepare for the next. And extreme weather events being on the rise, a lot of these are overlapping more and more. NOAA's Climate Extremes Index shows more and more of the country is having to deal with extreme and costly weather. Now, not every year is going to be like 2020, we hope. But the takeaway here is, and you can see it, the trend line is up, all right? Our country is home to the most diverse and dynamic weather on the planet, no question. But that weather is becoming more and more volatile as the Earth warms at an alarming rate. And that puts the very people who make their living off the land the American farmers in the crosshairs of economic peril. Our Weather Channel viewers are the very people who climate change is affecting the most. They are our farmers, our first responders, our airline pilots, our truckers, our working class families. While the phrase climate change has long been politicized in this country, these Americans are now facing this today in real time, what people thought might be a 22nd century problem. They are seeing their crops being washed away in 500-year floods, their livestock killed in monstrous wildfires and landfalling hurricanes. In conclusion, I used to question the roots of climate change theories. I, like many, doubted that climate change causes. But after covering severe weather for three decades, including more than a hundred dozens of tornado outbreaks and more floods than I can remember, I am here to tell you that climate change is real and we are absolutely playing a role in this. Not every disaster is driven by climate change, but more and more we're seeing things we've never seen before. And the link to climate change in many of these events is present. Our country is suffering. Just ask the folks in Texas. While these changes are alarming, there's still time. With the government's help, our farmers will be able to adapt to changing temperatures and can even mitigate future warming. But we must act now to make the tough choices that will not only improve the lives of future generations, but those of all generations living today and tomorrow. And for those farmers, whose life work is to feed this country and sustain one of the most time-honored industries of our great nation, we have a responsibility to help. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so very much for that profound and extraordinarily excellent presentation. You grabbed it where it needed to be grabbed, uh, Mr. Candorbury. I hope I got that right. I'll keep working on it as we move. Next, we will now hear from Professor Knox, 
Please begin now. Good afternoon, everyone. It's, my name is Pam Knox, and it's an honor to speak to you all today. And thank Chairman Scott and Ranking Member uh, Thompson and to all the members of the committee for allowing me the chance to share my expertise. I'm an agricultural climatologist and an extension specialist in the College of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences at the University of Georgia. And I'm also the director of the UGA Weather Network, which is a mesonet of 87 stations across the state that provides agricultural information to farmers and foresters in Georgia. You can see a picture of one of my stations behind me. Um, before I took my current job, I worked as the USDA-funded research scientist studying climate impacts on the Southeast um, and livestock Im impacts of climate change across the U.S. Uh, I'm also a former state climatologist for Georgia and Wisconsin. Um, what I want to talk about today is the importance of climate to agriculture and forestry. We know agriculture and forestry are highly affected by swings in weather and climate. Year-to-year -year changes in temperature and precipitation can be hard for farmers to deal with, and making a bad choice of crops or management practices can be costly. In addition to the natural variations of the climate, the U.S. is also getting warmer, as Jim mentioned, due to increases in carbon dioxide, methane, and other greenhouse gases. Average temperatures in the U.S. have gone up by almost 2 degrees Fahrenheit in the last 60 years. Higher temperatures mean longer growing seasons, more heat stress on livestock and outdoor workers, more time for diseases and pests to threaten crops, and a more unpredictable water cycle. It also means more extreme events, such as heat waves, droughts, and floods, that put farmers and foresters at risk by destroying crops and forests and flooding fields and pastures. Agriculture and forestry are being affected by climate, but they're also contributing to warming temperatures by adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere and changing the surface of the land. Livestock production releases methane into the atmosphere. Uh, using too much fertilizer adds nitrous oxide into the air and also pollutes streams and lakes. Cutting down on forests and draining wetlands for crops in urban areas releases carbon, dioxide, and methane. On top of this, 30 to 40 percent of all the food produced is never used. And this means that the fuel, water, and fertilizer that's used to produce it is wasted, and more greenhouse gases are produced as that food waste is dumped into landfills, and tractors and water pumps are run for no good reason. Fortunately, agriculture and forestry can be powerful helpers in fighting climate change, too. Planting cover crops can prevent greenhouse gas emissions tied to fertilizers and irrigation by keeping water, carbon, and nutrients in the ground in the first place. Growing more trees and improving cropland productivity can pull carbon dioxide from the air. Many of these choices also help the farmer's bottom line by reducing the cost of fuel, agricultural chemicals, and the labor needed to apply them. A lot of these solutions don't need to be costly either. They can uh, be a real benefit to lower income and black farmers with limited resources when you use these simpler solutions. Climate change is already here and farmers, ranchers, and foresters are already learning to adapt to the new conditions. Some farmers are taking advantage of the longer growing seasons by double cropping or growing new crops like satsumas and olives in Georgia, for example. Livestock producers are using shade structures or cooling barns to protect their animals from heat stress. Foresters are testing out new varieties of pine and other commercial tree varieties that can survive and thrive in the future. Many producers are also using smart irrigation techniques and other climate smart management practices to use water efficiently while protecting and improving the soils. 
But not all farmers know how to use these methods or can afford to follow them. So information and training on best practices need to be available for them to make the best use of their land. Agencies like USDF, USDA, NOAA, NASA, and others have a long history of providing science-based, region-specific information and technologies to farmers, ranchers, and foresters across the country to help them monitor local climate and prepare for and respond to extreme weather and changes in climate. Other programs provide financial support for scientists studying the problems of extreme weather and climate change. Knowledge, technology, and funding will all be needed to make a difference in fighting climate change. In closing, while, farmer, while farms, ranches, and forests are all contributing to the increase in greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and the rising temperatures that they produce, they also have the potential to help the U.S. reduce global warming by reducing emissions as well as absorbing gases from the environment. USDA and other agencies should be encouraged to work with farmers and scientists to find the best, most cost-effective ways to do this. Thank you all for your attention, and I look forward to the discussion on this and hearing your comments. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Knox. And now, Mr. Zippy Duvall, please start now. Well, good afternoon, uh, Chairman Scott and Ranking Member Thompson and all the members of the committee. I want to begin by thanking you for all the help you give our American farmers and ranchers over the last year and during this difficult time of the pandemic. It was came on top of an already distressed farm economy, and we're all glad to see some positive turns. You know, keeping our farmers and ranchers in production is vital to our food security and our national security. As you know, farmers and ranchers work hard to keep food on our plates while continuing to make great strides in sustainability, which brings us to the topic of today. American agriculture accounts for approximately 10% of the total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, far less than transportation, electricity uh, generation, and other industry sectors. Total carbon sink efforts uh, from forest land, grassland management, uh, and management of cropland offset approximately 12% of the total U.S. emissions. To continue to make these gains in carbon sequestration, we need to increase investment in agricultural research. We need new technologies to help us capture more carbon in our soil. Farmers continue to produce more food, fiber, and energy more efficiently than ever before. Over the last two generations, we've tripled our production without using more resources in our, from our land. In fact, we would have to add 100 million more acres in 1990 to match the same production of 2018. Our advancements in uh, sustainability are due to adoption of technologies and our farmers' terrific participation in voluntary incentive-based conservation programs. Uh, United States farmers have enrolled more than 140 million acres in federal conservation programs. That equals the total land mass of California and New York State together. Our farms and our land are our heritage. Every farmer I know wants to leave his land, air, and water, and his ranch and farm business in better shape and better condition than he found it. To achieve that goal, 
Congress must protect agriculture from undue burdens and to respect farmers and ranchers' ability to innovate and solve problems. And we must work with Congress to explore new markets and new opportunities for agriculture. Farm Bureau's grassroots development process supports uh, market-based incentives for adopting practices and planting crops that keep carbon in our soil. We welcome the opportunity to participate in emerges in an emerging uh, carbon market. To expand these opportunities, we convene a wide group of stakeholders to explore policy options that respect farmers and ranchers as partners, while also assuring that our rural communities can thrive. That effort, beca that effort became known as Farm uh, Food and Agriculture Climate Alliance. It consists of organizations representing a cross-section of farm and ranch, ranchers, uh, forester owners, uh, food sectors, state governments, and environmental advocates. We are working together to develop and promote uh, shared climate policy priorities. The Alliance united under three principles that guide all 40 recommendations. Number one, we support voluntary market and incentive-based policies. Number two, we want to achieve science-based outcomes. And number three, we want to promote the resilience and help our rural economy better adapt to climate changes. We hope the work of the and the recommendations of the Alliance ensure farmers and ranchers will be respected and supported. We must ensure that public policy does not threaten the viability of our farms and the long-term resilience of our rural communities. Americans have a new appreciation for the importance of agriculture after seeing empty shelves during the pandemic last year. And, and I am proud to assure that Americans of this country, Americans in, in America, that the commitment of the farmers and ranchers is unwavering and we will still be farming. So let's make sure that public policy doesn't stand in the way of our ability to continue to fulfill that commitment. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for holding this hearing today. I look forward to the questions. Well, thank you so much, um, uh, President Duval, for your excellent uh, remarks there. Uh, now, committee, before we continue with introducing the witnesses today and with the consent of my colleagues, I'd like to share with you now a very brief clip from the documentary entitled Kiss the ground. My dear friend, Congress Lady Jayapal of the state of Washington brought this film to my attention. I watched it on Netflix. I was very impressed with what they had to say, and I've invited them to uh, uh, show this very impressive uh, uh, film. It will introduce you to the possibilities of how we must balance our climate, replenish our water supplies, deal with the carbon, and most importantly, continue being the champions of feeding the world by taking care of our soil. Please start the clip now, would you? There's so much bad news about our planet, it's so warm. Truth is, I've given up. 
This is the story of simple solution, way to heal our planet. The solution is right under our feet, and it's as old as dirt. All of our soils that are under chemical conventional agriculture are almost completely devoid of microorganisms. Modern agriculture was not designed for the betterment of the soil. Fossil fuels are by no means the only thing that is causing climate change. When we damage soils, carbon goes back to the atmosphere. But when we destroy soil, it releases carbon dioxide. Biosequestration is using plants, trees, and techniques of grazing and farming to capture carbon and store it in the soil. We can fix a lot of our climate issues to we bring the CO2 down into a living plant and put it back into the soil where it belongs. Plants working with soil microorganisms, it seems too simple. Healthy soils lead to a healthy plant, healthy plant, healthy human, healthy climate. could be a way to eat food that heals the planet. The problem isn't the animal. The problem is where the animals are at. How do we take waste and repurpose and reuse it because it's really not waste? The food has to stay in the way. Compost is just one of a suite of soil-based carbon capture solutions. We know how We can reverse overwhelm. We can get back to the Garden of Eden that it once was by regeneration. That gives me hope. Our health and the health of our planet are connected. If you look over here, my neighbor's land that has been chemical fallow, then you look over at our paddock, you have a diversity of different plant species. Which model do you want your food to be produced from? That is pretty simple to me. I'll make you a deal. I won't give up, and neither should you. Thank you very much for that. And uh, what an, uh, a very informative message. And I would encourage as many of you to see the complete film, Kiss the Ground. It is uh, now airing on Netflix. And now um, we will return to hearing the testimony of the remaining two witnesses who are here with us today. Mr. Brown, uh, you may begin your testimony now. Thank you, Honorable Chairman Scott and members of the committee for allowing me the opportunity to speak to you today. Since 1991, my family and I have owned and operated a ranch near Bismarck, North Dakota. As a farmer and rancher, I have been affected by the extreme variability in weather. Drought, flooding, extreme cold and heat, the change in our climate is affecting everyone and every farm. Agriculture is often vilified as being a major contributor to climate change. But you can help agriculture become a major part of the solution. First slide, please. On the left side of this picture are my soils today. On the right side are my neighbors. These samples were taken only a few feet apart. The only difference is management, or as I like to call it, stewardship. In 1993, my soil organic matter levels were at 1.7%. Today, they are near 
my neighbors are at or below 1.7%. Today, my soils can infiltrate over 30 inches of water per hour, while my neighbors can infiltrate less than one half of an inch per hour. So how did farmers like me take large amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere and use it to regenerate our soils? The answer is we use six proven, time-tested ecological principles. These principles will work on every farm in every one of your districts. Next slide, please. We start with context. We're not planting orchards in the desert. That is out of context. We're making our farms more resilient. But programs like crop insurance are not rewarding farmers for positive outcomes, and they are not based on environmental constraints. We are serious about not only reducing and eliminating tillage, but also significantly reducing all synthetic fertilizers and pesticides as they harm soil biology, our ecosystems, and our health. I am holding a pint jar of treated soybean seed. The neonicotinoid on this seed has the capability of killing 72 million bees. This has to stop. Next slide. Alan Savory said it well when he said, it's not drought that causes bare ground, it's bare ground that causes drought. We are keeping our soils covered with diverse living cover crops and grain crops, thus continuing to pump carbon into the soil while protecting our soils from erosion, conserving moisture, and holding nitrates, phosphates, and other nutrients on our farms. We are prioritizing diversity. This committee can help every farm, ranch, and CRP land to significantly increase the biodiversity of plants, insects, and soil biology. We realize the importance of grazing animals. Our richest, healthiest soils were formed in partnership with grazing ruminants. Proper use of grazing ruminants is one of the keys to carbon sequestration. Next slide, please. Down to 36 inches and beyond, adaptive regenerative grazing is seeing total carbon gains significantly higher than rotational or continuous grazing. Next slide. This is the Chihuahuan Desert. Many think that with only six to eight inches of annual rainfall, it was always a desert. Next slide. The dark colored soil near the surface is carbon. This means it was recently a vast grassland. The erosion you see took only 60 years. You can drive through this desert and then you open a gate to Alejandro Carrillo's ranch. Next slide. The difference is stewardship. He is using livestock to regenerate his soils and increase biomass. Whereas neighbors need 300 acres to feed one cow per year, he only needs 30. As a result, regenerative farmers are substantially increasing the profitability of our farms and ranches, thus helping to revitalize our rural communities while producing food that is higher in nutrient density. We have done this while reducing our reliance on government programs. These programs should be a hand up or a reward for positive results. While more resources are needed, 
just increasing funding isn't going to solve it. We need to put that funding into what actually regenerates landscapes. We must make the adoption of regenerative ag available for all farmers from all backgrounds. From farmers to scientists to environmentalists to the government, we hear, I didn't know. Well, at one time, I didn't know either. We must educate not only farmers and ranchers, but all society as to these concepts which are rooted in indigenous knowledge. And it's not just about emission reductions. It's about our land's resilience and ability to function. Regenerating our soil ecosystem is the most cost-effective national investment we can make to mitigate climate change and heal society. The current system is broken. We need to change the way we see things. Regenerative agriculture is a win for all, and this committee, Mr. Chairman, can help lead the way. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you for your excellent uh, testimony. And now we'll hear from Mr. Schellenberger. Please begin now. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'll just jump right in by sharing uh, special slides that I've prepared for the committee. Um, So let's see, as background, um, uh, because I'm gonna present some information that may surprise some people, just my credentials, uh, Time Magazine here of the Environment, Green Book Award winner. I've been working with James Hansen, the climate scientist and others to uh, protect nuclear power plants, but I also have a new book out on uh, the environment called Apocalypse Never. While I am an environmental advocate and a climate advocate, I'm also concerned by a growing alarmism, which I think is not conducive to uh, sober and sound uh, climate or environmental policy. And I wanna draw attention to some important positive trends that many people don't know about. Uh, American farmers are world leaders in innovation, productivity, environmental protection. You can see here, our crop yields continue to rise dramatically over the last 30 years, whether it's soy, wheat, corn. You can see that globally, we produce enough food for 2 billion people right now. I think a lot of us experience the fact that we have too much food available. Um, it's a new problem in human history to, to have so much food. We produce 25% more food than we need every year. And the result is that uh, extreme poverty has declined dramatically globally. Just 10% of all humans live in extreme poverty today, down from about 50% just a few decades ago. Life expectancy has increased 40 years. And you can see that uh, soil erosion has declined in the United States uh, 40% while yields have risen. Very impressive achievement. Um, and we've increased meat production. We've doubled meat production um, even while reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Incredible success. We don't hear enough about this. And a big part of the reason is that we've um, cut the feeding time uh, for uh, various uh, animals, including uh, chickens, while doubling their weight. And you can see the big problem with degraded soils are in developing and poor countries, which I'll come back to, but they are experiencing soil loss at twice the rate of wealthy and developed economies like the United States. The evidence is clear. Technological change and agricultural modernization will significantly outweigh climate change in the United States and around the world. 
This is a very important report that was produced by the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization in their report from 2018 called The Future of Food and Agriculture. And just to uh, help you understand what you're looking at here, you can see that what it's showing is that whether you're in irrigated systems or rain-fed systems, and whether you're in the business as usual scenario, the sustainability scenario, or a scenario of, of greater inequality, what really matters is technological change. And just think of it as fertilizers, mechanization, and irrigation are the big three, but certainly better seed types massively outweigh the changes to temperature. And this is important because climate change is real. It's a serious problem. We should do something about it. Um, but we are not helpless, and if, if farmers continue to do what they know how to do, which is to adapt, uh, we're going to do very well. And in fact, the U.S. government's fourth national climate assessment uh, says very clearly that we can adapt to climate change through innovation and adaptation. They point to different seed types, crop rotations, cover crops, irrigation, managing heat stress, pest and disease management as the keys. If every nation raised its agricultural productivity to the level of its most successful farmers, oops, did I uh, lose you? Um, global food yields would rise as much as 70%, and they could rise another 50% if nations increase the number of crops per year to their full potential. I think that one of the most important things that the United States can do is to work with the World Bank and other institutions to help poor and developing nations to modernize agriculture for economic development, environmental, and public health reasons. We saw with the coronavirus pandemic, assuming that the conventional explanation of the coronavirus pandemic is, is accurate, it was a spillover of a zoonotic virus, uh, perhaps from a bat and perhaps through a pangolin, uh, through, uh, from low yield farming in South China. Um, we need to modernize meat production, pull meat production away from forest frontiers. We need to help countries to do that. It's in all of our interests to modernize meat production and agriculture. And there's good environmental reasons. You can see that because we become so much more efficient globally, we've actually reduced the amount of land that we use for meat production, which is the single largest use of the Earth's surface by humankind, by an area almost the size of Alaska. We know that the most efficient meat production in North America requires 20 times less land than the most efficient meat production in Africa. You can see there a scale, a scaled up uh, picture of that efficiency. We know that industrial meat production is far more efficient than pasture meat production and produces a fraction of the carbon emissions just by concentrating that meat production. In Brazil, we could save an area twice the size of Portugal. Thank you and restore a rainforest without impeding agricultural <clears throat> expansion. And I'll just close by saying carbon emissions in the United States have been going down uh, for many years. We are on track to meet our climate agreements. Um, deaths from natural disasters have gone down. There was some talk of increased cost of extreme weather events. In fact, as a share of GDP, they've gone down significantly. So I would Thank just say as somebody that's concerned about uh, climate change and other issues, we should just consider the fact that we're in the midst of a very serious drug overdose epidemic, which killed about 81,000 people last year in contrast to extreme weather, uh, which only killed 413. Thanks very much.
Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank each of you very much. And now we're going to open it up for questions at this time. And uh, members will be recognized for questions in order of seniority, uh, <clears throat> alternating between majority and minority members. And each member will be recognized for five minutes each in order uh, to allow us to get in as many questions as uh, we can. And I want to start by just stressing the importance of we in agriculture. This hearing has been put together to address all of the impacts with climate change, but to make sure that we are addressing climate change directly as it impacts agriculture and our food security first. And so let me start with you, Mr. Brown. You were featured in the documentary Kiss the Ground. And in that clip that we just saw, the narrator spoke of a simple solution for many of the climate changes we are experiencing. And that's what we are looking for today at this hearing, solutions. And what that announcer said was this, and I quote, the solution is right under our feet. Can, can you unpack that for us? I sure can. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. That solution is under our feet. That solution is biology, and it is regenerative agriculture. The way this works is that living plants take in sunlight, through photosynthesis, they bring in the carbon out of the atmosphere through photosynthesis, they produce all these compounds, and then they pump that into the soil. Studies have shown, Dr. Teague in 2016 showed that we can sequester over half of the carbon emissions annually in the U.S. through regenerative agriculture, through using these six principles that I laid out. This is not rocket science. It's simply using time-tested ecological principles to heal our planet. Now, let me ask you this, because I've been working very intimately with our farming interests, and there are two that come to mind, and I was wondering if this is an example of what you're talking about. One is with Bayer. Bayer has developed sequestration region and something called no-till farming, I believe. But at any rate, what they're doing is partnering with the farmers to get the solution that goes to your point. It's in the ground. It's there. Agriculture is agriculture for two reasons. The water coming from the heavens and the carbon and the ground, everything comes from that. And so I wanted your opinion on what Bayer is doing 
And I found out yesterday that some of my friends in the peanut industry are doing something similar. So my point is, is this the kind of thing that other interests in our farming sectors should be doing? Mr. Chairman, we all need to work together to further these practices of regenerative agriculture. No-till farming first came to the United States in 1962. We have only approximately 25% of the agricultural cropland today in no-till systems. No-till is a small piece of the puzzle, but we have to do much more than that. We have to keep the soil covered. We have to grow diverse cash crops, diverse cover crops, and then we have to integrate livestock onto those systems. Yes, Bayer and other companies, such as General Mills, are doing good things by partnering with farmers and ranchers. This needs to continue. It needs to be all of society coming together for the betterment of all. Um, okay. Um... I'm going to end there because I want to make sure we get our members in as many as we can. So I will yield to you, uh, Ranking Member Thompson. Chairman, thank you. Thank you to all five witnesses. It, uh, all five of you, the just great testimony. It just reaffirms, very frankly, what you're talking about are the things that this committee has been dedicated to. I think at least five or six years ago, we, uh, it was this committee that had the first hearing on healthy soils in Washington. So. In terms of regenerative uh, practices, I'm, uh, it was just re very reaffirming we've been doing the right things uh, for a number of years with the Agriculture Committee. Uh, great to see my friend Zippy Duval. Uh, Mr. Cantori, you probably don't remember, but you were in my district at the Weather Museum when you were honored in the Weather Hall of Fame in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. That's where we first met, and it's uh, great to have you uh, here with us today. Uh, I'm interested in working on solutions um, the Biden administration and the inside the Beltway think tanks are, are pushing a climate agenda, uh, suggesting new and shiny programs. However, you know, when I hear from the farmers about climate solutions, and that's what we should be focused on is climate solutions. That should be the term that we use. They talk about the needs for research, more boots on the ground, access to precision agriculture, healthy soil practices, and the need for broadband connectivity to support this technology. Now, this all sounds like assistance available within the Farm Bill programs that are there. Not to say that we can't improve upon them, uh, but it's a, um, it's a great base for addressing uh, really effective climate solutions, continuing those. So my question is simple. I'll tee it up. I'd love to get a response within the time I have from as many of you as possible. Is the solution as simple as doubling down on these proven programs. And uh, why don't we start with uh, Mr. Schellenberger. Yeah, thank you for the question. A absolutely, I mean, um, we should continue to do what we've been doing. Um, there's been a case made for expanded uh, investment in research and development. Uh, research and development works best when it is problem focused, when it's trying to solve particular problems. We have terrific uh, history through our agricultural extension programs of working with American farmers to improve yields. Um, so yes, absolutely, I think we should uh, be continuing with what's working uh, rather than um, changing course into something really different, particularly you sometimes see proposals from the environmental community 
that would result in lower yields per unit of land, um, lower efficiencies, I think that would be a huge mistake. So anything that can get us to greater efficiencies and greater productivity um, is also going to be important for adapting to climate change. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Schoenberger. Uh, President Duvall, great, great day. It was great to be with you, I think, yesterday, and, and good to see you virtually today. It's good to see you, too. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. Uh, I, I think we're, uh, the committee has worked in the right direction. I mean, if you just look at how much we have improved productivity, the efficiencies, and even here on my farm here, you know, I hear people talk about you know, agriculture destroying the climate. You go look at my farm and versus where my grandfather had it, I can show you evidence of gullies in the, in the, the forest land that's around my farm uh, from bad conservation practices back then. And now over several, several decades, my dad's life and my life, We've improved it. It's all grassland. There's no gullies anymore in the fields. We're sequestering carbon. We're making sure that we're putting on animal manure uh, uh, with GPS. We're do using comprehensive nutrient management plans. All those things were done through some of the programs at USDA. Uh, we're heading in the right direction. We just need partners to help us move forward. I am concerned if you look at the research dollars that we're investing in our country versus the rest of the world. I'm told that we're running behind on that. We need more research dollars so that we can have the new technologies and untie our hands. Give us a, a way to get the regulatory system a streamlined so that these new products can get to the field faster so that we can continue to be a part of the solution to the problem. Thanks, Effie. Uh, uh, Mr. Brown, you uh, congratulations on, on what you've been able to do on those 5,000 acres. Um, I, I've also been on farms where I've seen the evidence of regenerative or healthy soil practices and, and, and just right over the line, uh, the comparison. So I've only got a few seconds left, but I'll yield for you for any additional responses. Mr. Ranking Member, thank you. And yes, the agencies such as NRCS have done a good job, but we need to do much more in the way of education. We have to educate farmers and ranchers as to these time-tested ecological principles in order to move it forward. It's an absolute travesty that right now we have such a small amount of our landscape covered with cover crops. I fly extensively and you fly anywhere. The amount of bare soil we see is absolutely appalling. There's no reason for that. We need to do more and work with these, edu these agencies to further education. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you. And uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to insert a statement from the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture, NASDA, uh, for the record. NASDA statement supports the expansion of federal tools that incentivize climate smart practices. And now I'd like to recognize <clears throat> Mr. Costa from California. You're recognized for five minutes. Is she not there? Mr. Costa, are you there? 
Are you on mute? I'm unmuted now. Okay. Oh, wonderful. Can you hear me? You are now recognized, Thank Mr. You. Costa. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and congratulations uh, as um, a first committee hearing. Um, and uh, I look forward to working with you. I think this is an excellent topic to begin climate change and the agricultural economy in our country. And, and America has led the way in so many areas, as many of our witnesses have just testified for. Um, I'm reminded uh, as we discuss how we uh, become even more productive and more creative about a few facts. Some of us remember uh, the old uh, uh, television series Dragnet uh, and Sergeant Friday used to say, just the facts, ma'am, right? Well, the facts are the following. Uh, food is a national security issue. And less than 5% of America's population are directly involved in the production of food and fiber. Uh, we've had uh, an amazing change over the last 100 years. I'm a third generation farmer, but I don't farm the same way my parents did, nor my grandparents. Uh, and it continues to evolve with technology and innovation. Uh, another fact, uh, 200 years ago, we had uh, one and a half billion people on the planet. A few years ago, we just clicked over 7 billion people on the planet in less than 200 years. Uh, climate change has been occurring throughout the history of our planet. Uh, the only question is how much are we contributing to it? Well, I will tell you that uh, in 200 years, we've gone from 1 to 7 billion people. We're putting a lot more stuff in the air, a lot more stuff in the water, and we are having an impact. As a matter of fact, in 2006, I went with the National Academy of Science. I don't know if you can see this. This is uh, to the South Pole for a week. This is a little bio that calls itself the cleanest air on Earth. But it also shows, using isotope measuring from 1955 to 2006, that the CO2 um, emissions have increased by over 300%. Obviously, we're having an impact. And American agriculture can play a, an important role as has been cited by the statistics that have already put out there, um, because uh, it matters. Uh, California, uh, where I come from, where we've been farming for three generations in the San Joaquin Valley, is experiencing drought conditions again. It comes on the heels of the worst drought that we had in the West Shakur history from 2012 to 2017. Our snowpacks that we depend upon are becoming less plentiful, as well as the rainfall. 99% of California's agriculture, the number one agricultural state of the nation, is irrigated. We have an imbalance between overdrafting our groundwater. But I firmly believe that um, with science and our productivity, uh, we can address these issues. The uh, ingenuity um, in America's farmers, ranchers, dairymen, and women have played a big part in increasing our production and the quality of our food. From healthy soils program to state water efficiency, enhancement programs, alternative management, and research and technical assistance that are occurring all around the country, not just in California. And by the way, I'm a big believer in not reinventing the wheel. Our ag universities across the country, whether it's Texas A&M, whether it's the University of Georgia, whether it's Purdue, whether it's UC Davis or Fresno State, where I come from, there's a lot of good stuff going that we ought to combine in terms of research and development and innovation with public and private partnerships. Um, so let me just talk about sustainability and talk to you, uh, Zippy, 
uh, uh, because you and I are both. You're breaking up there, uh, if you can hear me. Is there any? Okay. The witnesses can. I think he's finished. Okay, thank you, uh, Mr. Costa. I think we had a little bit of interference on your audio at the end, but uh, thank you. Science-based outcomes of it. The science-based outcomes of it. And then, of course, all of us are very interested in uh, the resilience in our rural communities and what we can do there. But it all boils down to broadband, which is part of our infrastructure, right. and, and research and development. Mr. Chairman, I've run out of time, but I think it'd be helpful if our witnesses and, and Sippy, with your effort, if you can uh, uh, write to the committee about the mission and the development of your coalition and share some of the policy principles that the coalition sees as a fundamental way in which we address climate change and look at combining the efforts with this infrastructure package uh, to plus up these incentive-based programs or the farm programs mm -hmm. that exist today and new things we might look at. Yes, Thank we you. Can do that. Thank you. Uh, thanks to both of you there. Now, moving on, I will now recognize Mr. Austin Scott of Georgia. You're recognized for five minutes. Thank you uh, to my good friend, Chairman Scott, and to uh, Ranking Member Thompson. And I know that the title of the hearing is uh, based on climate change, but when, when we talk about this, you know, candidly, we're talking about environmental policy as a whole, and uh, we're talking about the habitat, we're talking about water. Uh, the better we are taking care of uh, the land, the better the better the land will take care of us. And so, uh, it, I'll tell you, I think we can and we should do a better job with the environment. And I look forward to being a a, a part of that further further discussion. Uh, one of the things that I'll tell you bothers me is when I see forest lands being uh, cut down and uh, solar panels being put up uh, when when clearly there's new technology today that, that will do a better job of uh, providing um, carbon-free or, or extremely limited carbon emission uh, electricity. I think that one of the things that we, we should look at is, is just the facts surrounding where the tax credits are going with regard to uh, that aspect of environmental policy. I recognize that comes through a different committee, but again, want us to uh, be reminded that it is it is environmental policy as a whole uh, that we have to focus on and, and not just uh, agriculture with regard to climate change. The other thing I wanna do is say a big thank you to Ms. Knox. Uh, when Hurricane Michael hit the state of Georgia, as you know, it was devastating to uh, the second and the eighth district had it not been for the University of Georgia and the other land grant institutions through their um, research and extension programs that provided the information to Chairman Scott and uh, Chairman Bishop and myself, then we would not have been able to get uh, the additional funds for uh, the relief from Hurricane Michael for our producers. And so 
big thank you to Miss Knox. I know you're doing a lot of great work down there on water conservation and other things in my hometown of Tipton and uh, where the National Environmentally Sound Production Agriculture Lab is. I would certainly invite all of my colleagues on the Ag Committee to, to make a trip down there to see all of the great work that is going down, that is going on at, um, at, at Nespaul. Uh, Mr. Kentori, thank you so much for your coverage of Hurricane Michael and what, what was happening to our farmers um, during, during that storm. The losses were, were astronomical and uh, it was your coverage that actually uh, helped share uh, our pain with, with the rest of America and their sympathy uh, was, and, and their prayers were much appreciated and I pre appreciate your coverage there. Thank you. uh, with, with that said, Zippy, we've been friends a long time. Uh, we we rewrote the whip program with Hurricane Michael. Uh, it didn't work as we had as well as we had hoped it would. Um, what suggestions do you have for how the Ag Committee can improve uh, the whip program as we push forward? Well, uh, Congressman, uh, we have been friends a long time, and I very much appreciate that friendship. Uh, of course, uh, every time we have a disaster, it, it looks like it's, it's a scurry on the hill to try to get that help out to the farmers. You know, unfortunately, even though the money was finally delivered to Georgia, uh, it was 18 months, two years later, and a lot of our farmers had already suffered the, the deadly consequence of it, and they lost their their businesses and their farms and wasn't able to be able to continue to farm. Uh, so we got to find some way to fast track that, whether it be set aside special funding for it uh, with certain restrictions around to make sure it doesn't get misused. But it needs to be a, a readily available when these disasters hit across our country. Mr. Gall, I, I agree with you. And uh, one of the current concerns I have is if, is if money that is currently set aside for our ag producers, which candidly is a very small percentage of the budget, when it's the largest portion of the economy in most of the states, um, I, I don't want to see that money moved into, into environmental policy. And again, that's coming from someone who thinks that we can and should take better care of the environment. And so the concept of, of you know, moving the $30 billion in CPAP into environmental policy bothers me, the concept of uh, doing anything with a carbon bank without an increase in the CCC bothers me. In the last few minutes, I want to say this um, to Mr. Brown, a uh, lot of great work at Fort Valley State University with ruminants, and so I uh, hope you're benefiting from that. I, I do I do want you to know, respectfully, um, crop insurance is, and, and, and it has to remain a risk management tool available for our farmers. and. If a, if a producer has a history of higher yields and lower losses, then they are rewarded with a higher average production history uh, and increased amount of coverage at lower premiums. And so if you have suggestions on how, how we improve it, I'm certainly open to suggestions of it, but I, I'll just tell you, production agriculture can't survive without some type of crop insurance program uh, that rewards that rewards good good farm practices. And so, so that not only gets the environmental practices, but it gets the production practices as well. And so uh, open to suggestions on how to improve it. I thought we did a pretty good job in the 2018 farm bill to encourage people to adopt conservation measures, but uh, not open to uh, getting rid of, not open to getting rid of the crop insurance program. So Mr. Chair, my time's expired, I know, but uh, appreciate uh, again, everybody, 
for the work on this. And uh, again, uh, Hurricane Michael taught, I think all of us from Georgia and Florida big lessons on, on the value of insurance and the environment. And, uh, you know, we, we can, we should do a better job with that. I and uh, I just want to recognize also those words that you said and also take a moment to compliment you uh, in helping provide the leadership for us after Michael. And you so eloquently stated that Georgia was slammed. And thank you, Austin, for pulling together. And we went together and got me, you, Sanford, as you said, got money down there. So we want to thank you and the young lady from the University of Georgia. Uh, now I will recognize uh, Mr. McGovern, the gentleman from Massachusetts, for five minutes. You may need to unmute. Uh, oh, he is? Oh. Uh, can we get one of our technicians? Oh, he's here. Oh, okay. Oh, he's on? Oh, good. All right. Uh, we are, they're working on it. We feel they should get it cleared momentarily. Okay. I don't want to cut them off. They can't. Um, darn. Right? Can somebody get word to him? Tell his staff or maybe. I, I don't. And then we can. We're. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I hear you a little. Okay. Go All ahead. Right. I hear you. Go ahead, All Jim. Right. Go All ahead. Well, first we of all, let me just say uh, uh, thank you, Chairman Scott, for organizing this hearing. Uh, I think it's long, a long overdue conversation. And I want to take uh, just a moment to underscore the sense of urgency that we should all be feeling. Uh, we have an extremely narrow window to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius to avoid the most devastating impacts of climate change, full stop. That means we need to achieve net zero emissions across our entire economy, including agriculture. And it means we need to prepare our farmers for the impacts of even the best case scenario of 1.5 degrees. That level of warming will still be hugely consequential and it's already happening. Now this might be news to some of my colleagues, but it's not news to farmers. Farmers are not the ones who got us into this mess, but now they're on the front lines of the climate crisis. We need to think big to help them build resilience into everything that they do, and we need to ensure that they have a seat at the table. Now, Mr. Brown, I want to thank you for sharing your story of making uh, ecological balance the heart of land uh, stewardship. I think there are both economic and ecological benefits that can be achieved here, and I'm reminded of the work that went into developing standards for organic producers, which was a collaborative process. Many organic producers live by the, the practice that you mentioned while adhering to strict program standards. 
when farmers transition to organic, they're taking a risk, but having standards means that they have a roadmap and a path to, uh, to build a consumer trust. So I wanna make sure that we're providing real guidance and real support to farmers who are eager to follow your example. I think we need to have a, a roadmap that has integrity. So could you please discuss what work lies ahead to develop standards for adopting regenerative techniques that will produce clarity to both farmers and consumers? Again, you know, organic farming is good for the environment um, and consumers have confidence in it because of, of the standards. I wonder if you could respond uh, with your thoughts to that question. Thank you, Representative McGovern. First, I need to just briefly jump back and address, uh, there was a couple uh, prior questions that were brought up that I did not get a chance to answer. Representative Costa talked about the need to sustain what we're doing and to be sustainable. I'm sorry, but I've spent a great deal of time in, central, uh, in the Central Valley of California, and with all due respect, that's some of the most degraded land in the United States. Do any water infiltration test there and you will see how degraded those soils are. Representative Scott, I did not at all say we needed to end crop insurance. That's not what I said at all. I simply said that we need to make it outcome-based and that outcome cannot be solely yield because yield comes at a detriment to the environment. We also have to realize that in regenerative agricultures, we increase the amount of nutrient-dense food grown per acre. There's a misconception out there that regenerative practices mean less yield. That's not at all true. I produce now literally 30 times as much nutrient-dense food per acre than I did before I started these regenerative practices. Now, Mr. McGovern, to answer your question, yes, we do need standards. The business that I work for, Understanding Ag, we work with a lot of organic producers leading them down this path. Organic is good, but we can do better because we can minimize the amount of tillage that they're doing. We can also increase diversity, increase the use of cover crops, produce more nutrient-dense food, and then through acts such as the Prime Act, we will be able to add value to the goods that they're producing. Regenerative agriculture is a time-tested, proven pathway to heal not only our land in respects to climate change, but we can heal our communities, the profitability on our farms and ranches, water quality, water quantity issues, and many of the other things that we're currently facing as a challenge in society today. Thank you. I appreciate your answer very much. And again, I think my time is up, but I just I, I, I just think it's important for all of us here to, to be focused on actually building a roadmap with standards, because otherwise we're just talking the talk and we're not walking the walk. And again, I think the organic example is, uh, is, a, is an example that uh, we should follow. But thank you very much. And you we do have that roadmap. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. McGovern. And now I recognize for five minutes Congressman Crawford from Arkansas. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate it. Uh, Mr. Duval, thanks for being here today. I, I wanted to <clears throat> visit with you a little bit about uh, some of the things that you know about our district. Uh, we're the largest agriculture district in Arkansas, we produce about half of the U.S. rice crop in my district, but we're, you know, a lot of production in other crops like cotton, soybeans, big aquaculture producer. 
And a lot of the climate dialogue related to agriculture is centered around carbon sequestration. I think it's important to recognize that the diversity of agriculture demands that there's not a one single solution approach that's appropriate for every crop or every cropping system or every, uh, you know, or, or, or every region, that there's unique um, considerations to each of those areas and, and systems. Rice, rice farmers are, are some of the most sustainably minded, sustainability-minded producers I think we have in the country, and they've, they've employed uh, considerable um, techniques to increase efficiency, uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions and, and water use, um, and also creating um, excellent wetlands habitat, which are uh, very biodiverse with numerous species of waterfowl, as you know, and you've probably even harvested some of those yourself. My question to you, though, Mr. Duval, is uh, one, of the, one of the great things about the Farm Bill Conservation Program is that they're flexible enough to help any farmer that wants to address a natural resource concern that's important to their farm, whether it's a rice farmer that wants to work on water management or a rancher that wants to put up fencing, the program allows farmers to decide. And I worry about a carbon bank being accessible to everyone and providing a level of flexibility. Do you share that concern? I do share that concern, Congressman, and, uh, uh, and you know, farmers are concerned we start a carbon bank and then some company in between the farmer and and uh, the, the people that are buying the carbon credits makes all the money. You know, what we need is something that generates some additional income at the farm level so that we can continue to do conservation practices. Uh, we need partners. And of course, USDA is a great partner, has been for years and years and years. And and uh, and we look forward to not just accelerating those programs to go from 30 to 40 percent of cover crop to, you know, hopefully 100 percent one day and, and kind of follow some of the principles we heard Mr. Brown speak of. But it, it, uh, education is a key part. And he mentioned that, too. But we need partners and, and the Carbon Credit Bank and moving in that direction. We do have concerns in that area that whether or not it will be available to everyone. You mentioned partners, and I know you mentioned in your testimony that you're working with Food Agriculture Climate Alliance, which has been very focused on cover crops and soil health, as you also mentioned, related to carbon sequestration. Uh, and as you know, and as I mentioned before, rice producers hold water in their fields in the off-season that provides habitat for waterfowl, also helps decompose rice straw from the previous growing season. So, in effect, ducks are our cover crop. It, it appears that the policies that FACA has identified to sequester carbon might only work for a couple of commodities. Um, if the government provides an incentive that's coupled to one or two commodities, then we could see drastic shifts in plantings and markets. I'm just asking if you can look into that and work with them and with us uh, to make recommendations to ensure that we're able to avoid that and that we find a solution to work for all commodities. I would, I would agree with that. And, you know, we, we are very concerned that a lot of the practices that farmers have been doing for decades now have been sequestering carbon all that time won't get recognized as we move forward too. the rice farmers, the pasture and cropland the management we've already done forestry. All of those farmers have been sequestering carbon for months, for years and years and years. And we need to recognize what they've done in the past too. Appreciate that. Uh, thank you, Mr. Duval. And, uh, Mr. Chairman, I will yield back. Um, 
Excuse me, I wasn't on. Um, now I recognize for five minutes Ms. Adams of North Carolina. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, um, and to the ranking member as well for hosting today's hearing, and thank you to our witnesses for their testimony. Uh, this is such an important topic. Climate change is a crisis, and we must treat it like one. It's already impacting our nation in deadly and, and uh, destabilizing ways. And like this pandemic, its impacts are being felt disproportionately by the most vulnerable among us. Today's testimony has further enforced that the climate crisis is also threatening our farmers' ability to grow food in productive and environmentally sustainable ways, which could have uh, detrimental impacts all the way up and down the food chain. So when talking about climate change and how it will impact the agriculture sector, I also want to make sure that we're strongly considering the role of our 1890 land-grant institutions and the role they can play. These institutions, such as North Carolina A&T State University, my alma mater, have incredible expertise in conducting agriculture research and providing extension services to farmers and ranchers, particularly socially uh, disadvantaged producers. I was proud that our committee included provisions within the American Rescue uh, Plan Act that will support these institutions, their students, including resources for research and education and extension. Professor Knox, uh, I know that you're with the University right. of uh, but I assume that you work with search and extension professionals at other land grants institutions. So uh, my question is, can you provide more detail on how you, how you collaborate with other institutions, particularly with the professionals at 1890 institutions, such as Fort Valley uh, State University? Yes, Congressman Adams, I'm happy to answer that. Uh, as you might be not to be su too surprised to know, Fort Valley is the group that I work with the most. Um, since I do a lot of my work with Georgia. We've had a number of research projects that have specifically included folks from Fort Valley as part of a, a consortium of researchers. Um, quite often those not only are in Georgia, but they also include other researchers from Florida and Alabama. And so we draw not from just uh, the 1990s group, but also from other universities. But they serve a very crucial role in our research because they have an audience that we really need to reach. Uh, we need to take our scientific knowledge and make it useful to a variety of farmers, including a lot of the black farmers and minority farmers um, that have very unique needs. You know, a lot of them don't run really big farms. A lot of them are growing specific kinds of crops. And we need to be aware of those needs and really respond to them. And that's where the 1890s institutions really fall in because they can help translate the science that's being done by the researchers to the farmers that are part of that community. And so by doing that, um, they serve really a critical role. Great, thank you. And you've, you've answered part of my next question and in, in terms of what role our institutions uh, in supporting uh, research and education and extension related to climate change, uh, what, what's their role and are there ways that we can further empower our 1890 land grants to support this ongoing work or to strengthen their collaboration with institutions like yours to expand opportunities? Yeah, I think that, you know, there's always ways to include, um, say, multi-university consortiums to do more research. Um, and I think 
there can be ways to say we really want to encourage the 1890s uh, land-grant institutions to participate in that. And so um, I know in the past, some of the research groups I've been on have specifically asked for, for those kind of partnerships. And I would like to see that continue or maybe even expand um, so that we can really use that expertise from the 1890s universities. Great, thank you. Mr. Brown, you mentioned carbon markets and some of your priorities for the policy in your testimony. Currently, many private car uh, carbon market offerings have minimum uh, acreage requirements indicating that the solution will benefit large-scale operations at the expense of small, diversified operations, which I find concerning. Uh, the minimum acreage requirements could have serious implications for consolidation in the agricultural industry, making it even more difficult for middle and small-scale farms to survive. So how important is it that all farmers be able to participate in carbon markets? And do you think that there are specific steps that Congress and USDA can advance to ensure that farmers of color and small, mid-sized, diversified, and beginning farmers can participate and be rewarded for implementing climate stewardship practices? Thank you, Representative Adams. And yes, that is certainly a major concern of mine as well. It does not matter the size and scale of farm is at they should be rewarded based on their practices and their outcomes. Small farms, in my opinion, have the ability to produce greater outcomes. They should be rewarded accordingly. I would urge that this committee looks to ensure that these small farms have the ability to be rewarded for what they're actually doing, and that we you make sure that any carbon market the vast majority of the income that can be had from selling carbon credits goes back to the farmer themselves. Uh, thank, thank you. you. Um, I think I'm, I'm out of time. Yes. Uh, so Mr. Yeah. Chairman, I'll yield back. Well, thank you so much. That was uh, very informative. Thank you. Um, Congress Lady Adams, and now I will recognize for five minutes Congressman Day Jarlay of Tennessee. Five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, I thank all of our witnesses for appearing today. A special shout out to Mr. Duvall from all the fine folks at Tennessee Farm Bureau. As you know, we have the largest Farm Bureau in the nation right in our district, and we're proud of the working relationship we have. So I'd like to get a question to you, but my first question is going to go to Mr. Schellenberger. Uh, it's timely because tomorrow we'll be voting on the Protecting American Wilderness Act, and uh, uh, Western wildfires are, are burning almost year-round now due to poor forest management, and I think we can prevent these uh, disasters uh, from breaking first place by doing a better job. We have over 80 million acres of Forest Service land that is considered high risk for severe fires. And we have overgrown forests that are in desperate need of both management and hazardous fuel reductions. So Mr. Schellenberger, how do you view the current management of our, our nation's forests and what should Forest Service and other land managers be doing better to encourage healthy forests? Well, thank you very much for asking the question. You know, we saw a very dramatic instance last fall in California, which is where I'm based, where we saw a high-intensity fire that was burning through the crowns of forests that were badly managed. When that fire arrived at a well-managed forest, the fire dropped to the ground and became a low-intensity fire. 
And what that shows is that while climate change may be influencing uh, forest fires, it's neither a necessary nor sufficient cause of high intensity fires. And the good news is that with better forest management, whether it's through selective harvesting, prescribed burns, or other methods that we already know how to use, we can prevent those kinds of high intensity fires from impacting our forests in the future. So um, thank you for the question. Absolutely, there's more we should be doing. It needs to involve both the federal government and state governments, given that a significant amount of our forest lands are federally owned. Okay, thank you. And contrary to popular belief, as a doctor and as Republicans, we do believe in science. And, uh, and uh, when discussing climate policy, it's important to note that the U.S. leads the world in uh, reducing carbon emissions. And within 10 years, uh, nearly 90% of all emissions will come from outside the United States. But still in 2018, we on the put together one of the greenest farm bills ever, uh, providing $6 billion a year to farmers, ranchers, and forest owners to implement soil health practices such as cover crops and no-till that can help draw down carbon uh, and store it in the soil. Uh, these changes came after hundreds of hearings and listening sessions across the country where uh, we heard directly from farmers. So before I, I get to Mr. Duvall with a question, I hope, Mr. Chairman, that you can commit to this committee holding a number of listening sessions uh, with farmers and ranchers before we pass any new climate legislation. And Mr. Duvall, can you talk about the support of both having stakeholder involvement in the creation of any new programs, as well as any changes to current programs, and the need to ensure that these are voluntary and incentive-based programs for the farmers? Well, the voluntary market-based incentive programs have proven to work. Uh, our farmers, if, if it's uh, based on sound science, and they know they're going to uh, improve the, their soils, improve their production, become more efficient, they will uh, grab a hold of those new projects and move forward. Whether they're new or old ones, we need to make sure we continue to support them. You're exactly right. Y'all support them very well. We appreciate that. And we just need to... Uh, uh, Do something, Mr. Brown. Education to the farmers of outreach is not as well as good as it should be, and and, and it needs to be available to all size farmers. We are we're all concerned that uh, consolidation. We we want to be there for the large farmer, but we want to also make sure that the small and middle sized farmer is able to succeed and, and participate in all those programs. To talk about. Uh, uh, having private uh, investment. Of course, uh, the private uh, companies out there, especially the food companies, are marketing their products on a, in a certain environmentally sensitive way. And if they're willing, they're going to do that, they should be able to put some of the money behind where their thoughts are and be able to help support some of these expensive things like uh, 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 newer digesters and, and other things that farmers are having to put on their land to be able to help move forward in controlling our climate. Thank you, Mr. Ball. It was mentioned that uh, nobody cares more about the land and the earth than our farmers and our agriculture community. So we're standing ready to make uh, things as, as good as we can. And so thank you all, and I yield back. Thank you very much, uh, Congressman Day Jarlay. And uh, to answer your question, you can rest assured that this chairman of this agriculture committee will make sure that our farmers are at the center of our movement out of whatever legislation, whatever appropriations 
That is the whole purpose of this committee, is for us and agriculture to have the inside pole position when it comes to climate change. My good friend Richard Petty told me and gave me that great advice when I asked him how he won so many races. He told me, he said, don't check the ones I've won. Look at the number of inside pole positions I've won. I didn't know what that meant at the time, but later I did. And he ended by saying that then I'd look back in the mirror and I can see all the wrecks. Our farmers will definitely, that's why we're having this hearing, to make sure our farmers, our agriculture industry has the inside pole position on our whole response to climate change. Now, I'd like to recognize the distinguished lady from Virginia, my good friend, Ms. Spanberger. Thank you. Five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And thank you to our witnesses. I, I came to Congress with a background in national security, and I know that climate change presents a national security threat. It also pres presents a threat to our health, economy, and the future of our nation. But agriculture, the work and purview of this committee can be and is part of the solution in addressing climate change. As you, sir, President Duval said in your testimony, U.S. farmers and ranchers have long been at the forefront of climate smart farming, and America's farmers and ranchers play a leading role in promoting soil health, conserving water, enhancing wildlife, efficiently using nutrients, and caring for their animals. I am so glad to see our committee address climate change with the urgency that it requires and I'm glad that we have brought farmers to the table, though virtual, virtually only today. Uh, I'm glad we've brought farmers to the table in discussing the role of agriculture in combating climate change. At times, farmers have been left out of the national conversation on climate change. When, as we have heard today, farmers, foresters, and ranchers can and in so many cases are part of the solution. We have heard from President Duval and our colleague, Mr. Costa, about how the practices they have employed on their own farms have changed from the practices their parents and grandparents used. And Mr. Brown has spoken today and widely about his choice to employ new methods to make his farm profitable and increase his soil carbon more than sixfold. Back home in Virginia, I've heard similar stories from crop and livestock producers in my district about how farming and conservation practices they employ are benefiting the environment, building more sustainable operations, and benefiting their bottom line. As chair of the Conservation and Forestry Subcommittee, I have listened to farmers not just back home in my district, but here in this room before our subcommittee. And as a result, I worked to introduce the Growing Climate Solutions Act last Congress with our colleague, Representative Bacon of Nebraska. And this bill has been endorsed by national farmer organizations, as well as large environmental and conservation groups, while garnering the support of corporations like McDonald's, Bayer, and Microsoft. This legislation has built a broad coalition because it empowers farmers to voluntarily employ or continue employing climate-friendly conservation practices, and it would help farmers unlock new revenue streams. 
Over the next month, I will be introducing a series of bills, including larger ones like climate, the Growing Climate Solutions Act or simple, straightforward ones like healthy soil, resilient farmers. And these bills would ensure that farmers are front and center in the conservation uh, conversations that we are having and that farmers have the tools to participate and benefit from voluntary programs as we all work together to tackle the climate crisis. Now, I'd like to direct my question to President Duvall with the time remaining. Just yesterday, Mr. Duvall, you published a column in which you stress the need to give farmers a voice at the table, particularly when it comes to changes in conservation programs. If the other committee members haven't read it, I recommend it to everyone. So, Mr. Duvall, could you expand a bit more for committee members uh, on how it is that we can make sure that the voices of farmers are heard when it comes to addressing climate change uh, and how we can prevent some of the mistakes we may have made in the past? Thank you. Well, I think, uh, Congresswoman, we, you're making the first step today Ask me to come here and sit on this panel along with the other panelists has done such a tremendous job and have my respect. Uh, we need to be at the table during the discussion so that we can tell you how those policies that you are considering, how it's gonna affect us on our land. How's it gonna affect small, medium and large farms? And, and, and as we do that, we can tell you what will work and what, what will not work. You also can help us make sure that the research dollars are there to find mm -hmm. the new technologies in the future. Let's make sure that we don't tie our hands with the current technologies we have because those technologies have allowed us to make the progress that we've made. And it, just like you said, as long as they're voluntary, they're market-based, and they're incentive-based, our farmers will latch on to it and do a good job with it. So I think you're making the steps, the right steps. Just please let us keep, keep our seat at the table and we'll make sure that you have all the information from the, the countryside for my farmers to make sure that you can make wise decisions that make not only farming successful, but also makes our, our rural communities resilient. Thank you very much, President Jabal. And to the other witnesses today, thank you so much for participating. Thank you for bringing your knowledge uh, and thank you for, for joining us. Uh, I hope that we'll be able to welcome you here in person at some point in the future. Mr. Chairman, thank you for this hearing. I yield back. Thank you, Ms. Brownberger. I got to remember to put my light on there. Uh, now I will recognize for five minutes Ms. Hartzler from Maryland. Oh, she's not. Then we will go to Ms. Hayes of Connecticut. You're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chair, for holding this hearing, and thank you to all the witnesses Can who are I here today. I'll do two straight with you. Yes, please. Go ahead, uh, Ms. Hayes. You're recognized for five minutes. Okay. Um, climate change important threat to Connecticut. From June 2016 through May 2017, Connecticut experienced its longest drought since 2000. At one point, more than 70% of the state was considered an extreme or severe drought. Simultaneously, the average temperature in Connecticut is continually rising. Since 1970, Connecticut has warmed by eight degrees. 
compared with the national average increase of 2.5 degrees Fahrenheit. To compound these issues, more frequent extreme weather is already costing Connecticut huge amounts of money. Between 2017 and 2019, Connecticut experienced two severe storms and two winter storms. The damages led to losses of at least $1 billion. Small farmers in Connecticut are leading the charge in sustainable agricultural practices, but we cannot leave the health of the planet up to individual decisions. As the members of this agricultural committee, it is our responsibility to ensure that the industry is providing clear solutions to address climate issues. My question today is for Mr. Brown. A report from the USDA recognized increased food insecurity as a risk posed by climate change. As a farmer who is practicing and teaching resiliency, can you explain how climate change could impact levels of food production and ultimately increase global food insecurity if we do not act? Thank you for your comment. The way for farmers and ranchers to not only mitigate climate change by taking more carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it into the soil is to make our soils more resilient. In 2020, Early County, North Dakota, where I ranch, it was the second driest year ever recorded. Yet, even though that happened, we were still able to graze the same amount of livestock. We were still able to raise profitable cash crops because of the resiliency we had built into our soils by taking massive amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere and putting into, in, into our soils. The other thing that many of us who are in re practicing regenerative agriculture are doing is that we're diversifying our farms and ranches. So many of our farms and ranches today are not diversified. They only grow one or two different cash crops. They only grow or raise one species of livestock. We need to diversify that. And by so doing, that's going to allow society to have the food security we need. Thank you. Uh, you're right. Clearly, it's essential that we preserve the resiliency of our agriculture sector if we have any hope of eliminating hunger in America, which we've seen literally in the last year grow to be ballooned to a much larger problem. Uh, Mr. Duval, we all know that heat stress will likely cause the overhead costs of dairy farms to go up while driving their production down. Many small farmers in my district, dairy farmers, already turn limited profits under this current situation. Can you provide some steps that Congress and the USDA can take to help small dairy farms as they prepare for climate change? Well, of course, uh, I think we've taken some uh, huge steps already through Congress to, uh, to help in the Farm Bill fix some of the uh, problems we had around the risk management tools. Uh, that we had built in there for dairy farmers. And there's also been some private products that's been offered to them. But, you know, we need to take a hard look at the uh, federal milk order system. Uh, we need to make sure that our farmers have an opportunity to speak to changes that are made in the federal milk order system and that they, each one of them have the opportunity to speak to that. So we are right now uh, continuing to do a study of our own and we'll be glad to share you the results of that study as we uh, finish it out on how we move forward and make it more profitable 
we continue to see small dairies go out of business and more consolidation in dairy and get bigger. Now, this country, and really American agriculture, was built on the back of small dairies all over this country when we were all real diversified. And it really is a shame to see these small dairies not survive anymore. We have to find a way that small, medium, and large dairies can survive in this environment and to help them be financially stable enough uh, to, to be able to take on the practices, in some cases, that are going to cost a lot of money uh, to, to help us in climate change. Thank you, Mr. Duvall. I truly appreciate saying that because my in my district, in my state of Connecticut, small dairy farmers are really the backbone of our farming and agricultural industry. So I really appreciate you saying that and for coming to this hearing because we, we cannot continue to have these circular conversations debating if climate change is real or if it is happening or what the impact is. We have measurable data that tells us all this information and now we have a, a responsibility to act. Thank you, Mr. Chair. With that, I yield back. Well, thank you. And uh, also thank you, Ms. Hayes, for the excellent job you're doing as the chairman of our subcommittee on food and nutrition. And now, um, let me give an apology there in my structure. I got my paperwork mixed up and recognized two Democrats now. Thank you for allowing me to represent and to recognize two Republicans. Thank you for your understanding. Uh, and next, we will have Mr. LaMalfa from California. Thank you, Mr. Five Chairman. minutes, sir. Thank you, sir. Uh, Mr. Duvall, real quickly, I wanted to touch on the uh, concept of uh, with the carbon banks and uh, the USDA, maybe through CCC being uh, a possible authority of establishing carbon banking, um, does, has AFBF looked into whether uh, the USDA can do this on its own authority, or would the US, with the, would Farm Bureau be um, joined with us in opposing any attempt to have that just be done by executive actions, as opposed to running through a congressional process so this can be vetted and that there's not winners and losers on how the carbon banks would work. Do you, do you believe that, uh, as, as Farm Bureau looked at that, and what, what do you believe the position should be on that? Yeah, I haven't, I, I haven't uh, asked my staff if we were looking into the legality of it. I will tell you that uh, I am con we are concerned that if, if it is developed and, and, and financed through the CCC, that the levels of CCC uh, borrowing authority is not nearly high enough. We, we, we support raising that level to uh, $68 billion, we think, uh, because of the economy uh, and the increases over years, that it should be at that level instead of $30 billion. Uh, I have spoken to Secretary Vilsack about that certain uh, issue, and, and he, he promised, he, he committed to me that he would not pay for it off the back of our Title I program, or our conservation programs. So well, I was delighted to hear that. Uh, but, you know, we're interested in seeing, you know, this is the place, agriculture is the place, this is committed where we see the most cooperation between both sides of the aisle. Y'all always find a way to find ways to work together. And I hope that in this environment, we can continue to do that. And I think I see that in the leadership of this committee. And, and I would love to see the conversation be, uh, through this committee uh, decide how that's going to be paid for and where it's going to come from. 
if we're gonna if we're gonna put in uh, in modern day agriculture, we've got to have modern day practices. It requires research dollars. It requires extension and education. It, it requires funding for new programs that we put out there. Uh, if it has to do with climate, the funding has to follow those programs. Yes, sir. So that yeah. farmers and ranchers can afford to do that. Yeah, I, I just uh, don't want to see an authoritarian. Uh, attitude come out of this because it's uh, it looks just a little bit ominous. What hasn't been talked about very much is an already difficult situation with ag profitability and where, where are they going to find the profitability? You know, we have the concept of, uh, of diversification. Well, certain climates, certain soil types, certain water availabilities don't just lend themselves to just change crops. And uh, I experienced that in Northern California. We have some of the best crops grown in Central California if they have the water supply not taken from them. That's the only places many of these crops are grown anywhere in the world. So, Mr. or in our country at least. We'd have to import as part of the problem. Mr. Schellenberger, I appreciated your uh, testimony and your way of uh, talking about things uh, in this conversation, as well as recognizing farmers are, are doing a pretty good job in this country in innovation and trying to keep up. Uh, we're hearing a lot of talk about the crisis of climate change and what what is your interpretation of where we're at, especially with how what agriculture might be uh, uh, driving in or helping with in uh, in this crisis as it keeps being presented uh, ad nauseum, in my view, around here. I think, uh, you know, and, and, and please touch, bring that in on forestry because my area is a part of the area that's uh, burning so much. I, I believe strongly that it's um, from an overload of fuel in, in uh, our western forests. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the question. Um, yeah, I'll make a couple of comments. I mean, I think the first is that I think it's a mistake to use climate as the single overriding uh, measure of success with farming or anything else. I mean, we see that um, carbon emissions have been coming down uh, in the same way that other air pollutants came down in the 70s. You know, it's actually quite extraordinary progress in the United States, mostly due to the transition from coal to natural gas. Um, in the case of farming, um, increased efficiency and productivity should be the goals because those result in what we call land sparing. It results in less land being used, less fertilizer, less runoff, less air pollution, less land farmed means less um, uh, air pollution from farm machinery. Um, so I, I think it's a mistake to, to organize strictly around carbon. Um, I, I think, you know, in many ways you want to organize more around land use efficiency or input efficiency. Um, you know, on the question of emergency crisis, those aren't words that I think are very helpful. We saw some activists um, encourage panic. That's not something we should ever encourage since panic means unthinking behavior. Climate change is a long-term process. It's um, it's not something that you solve with one piece of legislation or that one generation will solve. It's something that we're going to be managing for a long time. Oh, okay. And um, so when it comes to forests, I, I'd love to see uh, more money spent on forest management. I think that's a much more higher priority since we just have a lot of fuel buildup in Western forests that led to the severe fires that we oh, saw last fall. I, I appreciate that. We. Um, um, the, the the crisis really seems to be driven by lack of forest management and the uh, overload we have per acre of uh, forest fuels, and we don't seem to be able to get much cooperation. I appreciate that your your points on um, you know grazing could be part of that tool in your in your comments, and 
and the grazing is always under attack in western states as, a, as part of that tool. And great points as well on uh, the more you cause some of these effects, it takes more land to grow the same amount of crops and in, with that more water that we're in short supply in California as well. So, uh, Mr. Schellenberg, I'd love to have you come up to my uh, ranch in Northern California sometime and talk about this some more. Thank you. Thank you. And now I recognize Mr. Allen for five minutes from Georgia. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, I want to wish everyone a good afternoon. Um, welcome our panelists. Uh, and I'm just delighted that we're having a, a, a hearing for almost exactly a year. This committee has, for all intents and purposes, been non-operational. Since March 4th, 2020, we've had one single full committee hearing. Uh, and in my opinion, this is inexcusable, and I believe Chairman Scott and Ranking Member Thompson share that opinion with me. I'm looking forward to returning to regular order quickly. And uh, Chairman Scott, I appreciate, uh, uh, again, your insistence on getting, uh, getting this, thing, this ball rolling very quickly. We have a lot of important business and oversight to tend to, particularly we, uh, we begin the preliminary first steps of writing a new farm bill. It's hard to believe that, uh, uh, that that's uh, uh, coming up uh, so quickly. Uh, Zippy, as you already pointed out, farmers are not the problem when it comes to greenhouse emissions. With the ag industry only producing about 10% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, we're kind of barking up the wrong tree with this hearing. Farmers are the best environmentalists in the world because they depend on the land for their livelihood. You know, in the book of Genesis, we're told that God gave us dominion over the earth. Uh, all the challenges found in the ag industry come right out of Genesis 3.18. Uh, God created man and woman, to, and he created them to tend the garden, which, again, God created. Uh, if we want zero net carbon emissions, there's a lot of ways to do it. Uh, you know, one is uh, obviously plant three million, uh, three trillion trees uh, would be a start. Uh, but what the two sides of the aisle disagree over is not really climate change. Uh, we all want to be good stewards of the environment, but we disagree over is the, uh, what we disagree over is the power that should be given to the government. Climate change at its worst can be and is used by nefarious actors as a Trojan horse by which they gain the power to regulate and have total oversight over every industry and citizen in this country. Uh, there is room for both educated insight and common sense in this debate. But right now I feel uh, that uh, we have too many absurd policy proposals coming from the far left alarmists. One fact uh, from the Earth Observatory at NASA on the actual tilt of the Earth suggests that the debate uh, on, how, on, on how much this is caused is, is, uh, is, is still ongoing. In fact, uh, that uh, piece of uh, article says that as the actual tilt increases, the seasonal contrast increases so that winters are colder and summers are warmer in both hemispheres. Today, the Earth's axis is tilted 23.5 degrees from the plane of its orbit around the sun. But this tilt changes during a cycle that averages about 40,000 years. 
Again, I think I heard someone say this is a long-term issue. Uh, the tilt of the axis varies between 22.1 and 24.5 degrees. Because this tilt changes, the seasons as we know them can become exaggerated. Um, and Zippy, I'll start off with you. I think you and I, uh, of course, I don't, uh, I don't believe anyone has claimed that they're in charge of that tilt. Uh, Zippy, I think you and I know who is in charge of the tilt and who created it. But uh, my first question to you is, uh, you know, wh what is the greatest environmental challenge uh, that our industry, uh, agriculture industry, faces? What is the biggest environmental challenge? Yes, sir. Well, I can tell you what the biggest challenge is to agriculture. The biggest challenge to agriculture, the biggest limiting factor of agriculture is labor. But that doesn't have anything to do with the climate. Right. Uh, uh, I, I think the biggest uh, limiting factor is our outreach and our communication. We, we need to make sure that we continue to tell farmers because uh, we do not have every piece of ground uh, with cover crop on it. We do not use no-till on every piece of ground. But we need to continue to talk about what that does for us in the future, and we need to educate people and move them toward that. But it takes partners to do that. It takes money to do that. And, and of course, the programs that we've had have helped us, And but we need to continue to move forward in that direction to put those practices on the ground. I, another one of the limiting factors is the amount of research dollars that's being spent on these issues. I keep hammering on that because it is important. Research has kept us on the cutting edge of agriculture. You know, uh, a lot of times uh, American agriculture gets downplayed as the bad guy. Uh, but we do, uh, uh, where agriculture in the rest of the world represents 25 to 35% of the greenhouse gases, we only represent 10%. We are the leaders. Everyone should be following what we're doing in our country, and we ought to be accelerating through research monies and new projects to put on the ground and encouraging people to do it. Partners, research, and, and moving forward. Well, thanks, Zippy, and I'm, uh, I, I'm out of time and I yield back, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much, uh, Congressman Allen. And now I recognize the gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Rush, for five minutes. I want to thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I was born on a farm, and as the son and grandson of uh, two Georgia farmers, I'm very excited about being on the Ag Committee, and I'm excited about this hearing, and I want to commend both you and the ranking member for conducting this hearing. Uh, my question to you uh, is directed, rather, to Mr. Naval. Mr. Naval, according to Feeding America, before the COVID-19 pandemic, more than 35 million people struggled with hunger in the U.S., including more than 10 million children. The coronavirus pandemic has made this situation uh, worse and we know that the climate change will only further exacerbate the problem. 
innovations in food production can enable growers to produce higher yields with lower Im inputs and help crops sustain the environmental stressors and that will likely get worse due to climate change. New technologies can also help address the lack of fresh fruits and vegetables in food deserts by, among other things, cutting down on food waste. Mr. Naval, how can we accelerate, uh, accelerate the development of new technologies to prepare for a changing uh, environment and tackling the growing problem of hunger? How can we ensure that these technological breakthroughs are widely shared to benefit socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers and urban communities who have been able to accept Answer back for the question, and you're exactly right. The technologies that we've had at our fingertips have helped us be uh, improve our production by threefold in the last decade. So, uh, to, to to what can you do to help us? We need to streamline the uh, regulatory system. Uh, when these technologies come forward, let's streamline the process to be able to get them approved and get them out on uh, out on the farms to help us do that. We can do things like uh, uh, put crops in the ground that use less water. We can uh, put uh, growth of vegetables that have more nutritional value. If all these technologies are, are streamlined and instead of it taking five to 10 years, cut it back to a year, a year and a half and get it out on the farm so that we can uh, grow the crops, uh, be more efficient and keep the price down because the way we can produce in America, there is no reason for anyone in America to be hungry. Farmers don't want that. We want to do the best job we can. We want to keep the, the cost of, uh, of, of, of food reasonable so everybody can have access to it. And we appreciate the work that Congress did with us and Feeding America through USDA to deliver. Uh, uh, when the market changed after the COVID hit, you helped us deliver uh, food boxes to families and helped our farmers change the way they marketed their food. So we, we are very appreciative of those programs. But streamlining regulatory uh, agencies to where we can get those products out to the farm quicker. I want to thank you, Mr. Couturier. Uh, in your testimony, you mentioned how, and I quote, children are being diagnosed with increasing respiratory illnesses due to a more hostile atmosphere. We know that black and brown children already tend to have a higher rate of respiratory illnesses as a result of poor air quality. As environmental conditions continue to change, what impact do you anticipate that they will have on already vulnerable populations? Thanks for, thank you, uh, Congressman Rush, uh, for the question. Uh, you know, when you have these high quality, higher quality days, uh, you know, we've already got tools out there at our disposal to keep people inside as much as possible, but sometimes that isn't possible and, and they have to go outside. Things like asthma uh, are certainly becoming more prevalent um, with children and adults 
uh, because there's so many pollutants that are just trapped in the air. And the longer we have these heat waves, uh, and they're popping up, you know, everywhere. No, nobody's unprivy to this. Um, you know, you are going to have these pollutants just trapped and trapped in the air. Nothing is there to mix them out. So, you know, in addition to what we're watching with weather, uh, air quality issues, even though it's not something we see coming down at us, uh, is just as important to watch. So these are expected to increase in the future, sir. Well, I want to thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I yield back the balance of my time. Thank you, Mr. Rush. And now I recognize Mr. Kelly of Mississippi for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, I, I make for unanimous consent that I get at least 25 minutes to ask my questions because uh, there's so much in this. And I thank you for having this important hearing. And I'm joking about the 25 minutes. But one of the things I want to talk about uh, is I want to make sure that we're focusing on results and not resources or on our solution. Many times we ignore results uh, because once we get invested in our solution or one way, we ignore new technology or new solutions. And so when we're talking about zero emissions, uh, I know Zippy Duvall talked about uh, many farmers now have zero, uh, uh, zero emissions or net zero emissions, and I think that's important. And going back, uh, to uh, the cover crops and doing that to enrich the soil. Uh, you know, you have rice, as Mr. Crawford brought up, and I just got off a, a call with USA Rice and talking about the cover crops literally being ducks, uh, you know, to flood those areas. But in my area, we have many different types of crops. And so I'm not sure that the same cover, and I want to make sure that we do the right research uh, to get those, whether that be peanuts or cattle or sweet potatoes or poultry. And so, uh, Zippy, uh, can you address any crops that maybe a one cover crop is not a, uh, a, a one solution is not, does not fit all or any specific crops which may have a different cover program to make sure our soils are preserved? Uh, can, you, can you address that, Mr. Duvall? So, of course, uh, I think all of us know trees are the best way to sequester carbon. Uh, and then a diverse landscape of of, of, of different crops uh, in different regions uh, would be the next, next best, best step. But there's tremendous work we do in the animal area. You know, there's feed additives. Uh, and I was asked earlier, what can we do to help along? There are feed additives, the FDA, they, they consider those as, uh, as drugs. They need to be considered as feed so that we can get those, uh, those additives approved and get them out on the farm to lower the greenhouse gases that are coming from our animals. And, and you know, the, the, so those, those are some of the suggestions I would make. Very much, and uh, I just, you know, Mike McCormick and Mississippi Farm Bureau and you, uh, Mr. Dahl, have been such great friends and great resources. And I just hope before we do one size solution fits all that we talk to our Farm Bureaus or, or other organizations across our nation that represent all of our farmers, not just certain areas, because uh, regions are different. The other thing, uh, Mr. Mr. Duvall, uh, how effective would getting rural broadband to our farmers to have access, and uh, would that be helpful to uh, to them being able to have the technology and information and education to farm better for our environment? 
You know, I talked a little bit earlier about broadband being part of that uh, uh, building on our infrastructure. And, and today, broadband is not a, uh, a luxury, it's a necessity, uh, whether it be education, healthcare, and taking advantage of technologies that are coming down the pipe that farmers can use to be more efficient and more climate friendly. So it is absolutely necessary that we get those maps right, that the federal dollars that y'all are so kind to put out there to try to fill that gap between urban and rural America, that those dollars go to the correct places because a lot of places those maps aren't right. I struggle with here with it in my house and I'm only 70 miles from Atlanta. You know, so we have got to do this. If you think about uh, electrification back in the 30s and how important that was to all Americans, it is no, uh, broadband is no different. It has the same importance today that electrification had back then. And we have to find a solution. We found a solution to that one. We can find a solution to this one. Thank you again, Mr. Duvall. And, uh, you know, I want to go back to Ms. Adams' point. I have many 1890 universities uh, that I represent, and our HBCUs, and many agricultural colleges, to include Mississippi State University, uh, which is not an 1890s college, but also an agricultural college. And I just think it's so important that we use research dollars to allow these universities to look at all these individual areas that I'm talking about in crops in specific regions, because nobody is better situated to talk about specific regions. And then uh, I'm running real close on time. And the final comment I will make uh, is number one, invest in research in our 1890s universities and other universities, agricultural universities. And the second is we really need to get our State Department engaged uh, in foreign policy that deals with nations that are either too poor or either ignore the environmental consequences and climate consequences of their nation. We need to engage them and make them part of our foreign policy, whether it be through trade or other initiatives with our foreign policy. And with that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Yes, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Kelly, and thank you for emphasizing our 1890s and the fine work you did with me and the committee with a great bipartisan effort in getting that $80 million down to those schools. I always lift that up as one of our shining bipartisan moments. Um, and now I I'd like to recognize the lady from Maine, Ms. Pingree, for five minutes. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chair. Thank you so much for hosting this hearing and, and making it our first hearing. I think it really um, has been very interesting and informational and really appreciate uh, that we have a lot more agreement than uh, we often think that we do. And, and many of the topics that we brought up um, have shown our, our uh, similar thoughts. I won't get a chance to ask everyone a question, but I do want to thank all the presenters. You've really given us such a great cross-section from weather professionals to the importance of the Cooperative Extension Service, the farmer's perspective, and uh, Zippy, uh, I really appreciate, um, I know I got to have a meeting with you, it was a long time ago, because we can't meet anymore, but um, the work you've done with the farm, the Food and Agriculture Climate um, Alliance is, is really uh, a great way to bring all the commodity groups and the farmers thinking together, and I, I think that's really advanced a lot of our thinking on this, so thank you so much on that. Um, I've worked on this topic for a long time. I care deeply about it, and uh, I encourage many of you to sign on to my uh, piece of legislation, the Agricultural Resilience Act. I think there's a lot of things we agree on that you all have been talking about on both sides of the aisle. Research, 
soil health, viability for our farms, pasture-based livestock, uh, food loss and waste, which is a, a big topic that our cooperative extension agent mentioned. So th there are really a lot of ways that are farmer-driven that we can work on this. Um, I want to uh, try my first question on Mr. Brown. Uh, thank you so much for uh, really representing the point of view of what it takes for a farmer to make this transition. I want you to know I'm a longtime fan of yours here. Got your book. Uh, if you were uh, in the same room, I'd ask you to sign it and I'd give it to one of my favorite farmers because I've really enjoyed reading it. But um, And I also want to thank you for giving a shout out to the Prime Act. We're not talking about that today, but that really addresses the importance of having more infrastructure available to farmers and farmers who want to sell directly to consumers. Um, there's a real dearth of slaughtering um, capability in our country, particularly for small and medium-sized farmers. So appreciate that you brought that up. Um, you've gotten you know, such a good um, explanation here, I think, to people about the work that you've done. But I know for a lot of farmers, it's very hard to make this transition. You've invested a lot, uh, you know, farmers have in the way they do things, maybe it's generational. So making this shift is a big leap. And I know you do a lot with talking to farmers about how you made the transition. What do you think we need to do to help support farmers in those transitions through the programs that we have or other things that we could be doing more of? Thank you. I'd be happy to sign a copy of my book for you anytime. Uh, the number one thing that's needed, and Mr. Duvall touched on this, it's education. You don't know what you don't know. You know, I owe de a debt of gratitude for to NRCS. There's many good people who work for that agency. They're moving in the right direction, but they need to be given the opportunity to educate farmers and ranchers. We need to really refocus conservation programs to maximize the adoption of these regenerative principles. You know, everyone here agrees that these principles work. Uh, some say, have said, well, these principles, cover crops may not work in my area. Well, they missed the principle of context. It, you have to grow the species that work in your area. Farmers and ranchers are not going to know that intuitively. Okay, we have to use programs, use agencies like NRCS, the Extension Service, to educate farmers and ranchers. And I think it's important to note that by doing so, farmers and ranchers are able to significantly decrease their inputs. I can't say that enough. For instance, uh, look at corn today. The average cost to produce a bushel of corn is near $5. Yet I know more many regenerative farmers who are doing it for less than $2 an acre because they are educated and have the information that it takes in order to cut those input costs. So thank you for the work you're doing. We certainly appreciate it. Um, thank you. I, I don't have much time left, but let me uh, give it to Zippy. If he wants to talk at all about the food and agriculture work that you've been doing and just how that's brought so many different commodity groups and farmers together to talk about these things. If you look at the, the Food and Ag Climate Alliance, it's a historic alliance. Never before has uh, these organizations that uh, think differently come together and agreed on three principles and put forth 40 recommendations. Uh, we are very proud of that work. We hope that people on the Hill, as yourself, Congresswoman Lady, that, that you will use those recommendations to help go forward and set policies. 
but it was not an easy feat and none of us knew that we could make it happen. But when I sat down across the table from environmental advocates, uh, people's eyebrows kind of went up. And, uh, uh, but we were able to do that because what we discovered is what we all want is uh, thriving communities, successful farming, providing a great environment for our families, livestock, and the wildlife. We all want the same thing. We just have different ideas of how to get there. It's kind of like pitting conventional farming against organic farming. There's room in the marketplace for all of it, but we surely don't need to be throwing each other under the bus. We need to be working together to provide it for the people that want it and provide a good environment for us all living. Thank you. I've gone way over my time, but thanks for the work you do for farmers and all the presenters. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Fingery. And now I recognize Mr. Bacon of Nebraska. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And it's uh, such a, a joy to be part of the Agriculture Committee. Agriculture plays such an important role in Nebraska. It's the primary industry. It's the backbone of our economy. And even in Omaha, in the district that I represent, agribusiness is, is the core. I just want to make a brief comment, then i got two questions. Uh, but I just want to start off by saying conservative climate solutions work. And we just look at the energy sector. Over recent years, we've become an energy, uh, the, the largest energy, energy producer in the world. We've become energy independent for the first time since the 1950s. So just think about that, over 70 years ago, roughly. Uh, we're exporting energy now. We're helping out our allies in the Baltics uh, gain energy independence from Russia. But we've done all of this while cutting emissions more than the next 12 countries combined. And I think that's an incredible accomplishment. From 2005 to 2019, uh, we reduced carbon emissions by 33%. And we did this by, not by punishing people, we did it by incentivizing behavior. We also did it by incentivizing technology and innovation. And that's what we should continue doing. So my first question goes to Mr. Duvall. We know farmers are already making many positive changes and we're, and we're already seeing the results. So my question is, should we implement policies for our farmers and ranchers to help them make more money by implementing, but when they implement sustainable agriculture practices? In other words, should we be focusing on incentives more so than the punishments. Mr. Duvall. Uh, you know, the heavy hand of anyone uh, never works. Uh, even, even sometimes when you think about our children. And, you know, so when you make it market-based, voluntary incentive programs uh, and prove to our farmers that it has a science-based and it's gonna provide that kind of outcome, they're gonna, they're gonna take advantage of that, that program that you put out there. So it's, it's vitally important that we make it voluntary, uh, market incentive-based programs as we move forward. And we look forward to having that discussion about what that looks like and making sure that it fits all size farmers. That, that is crucially important to us because we wanna make sure, you know, a lot of people look at American Farm Bureau and say, you represent the large farmers. We represent large, medium, and small. We're always there to have their back, and, and, and we look forward to working with you to make those, uh, find those solutions. Well, we look forward to working with you two on this because this is the right way to go forward. Uh, conversely, I just want to get your input. What happens if we put a carbon tax on our farmers, such as uh, on fuel and energy? 
what kind of impact is that going to have on a farmer's uh, top line and, and margins? Uh, inputs are, are, are one of the biggest uh, expenses that we have, and you start taxing that, you'll, you know, the, the profits in agriculture are so razor thin now, that's why people become bigger, because the margins are thinner and thinner, and you got to do more and more to be able to make a living out there. So if you put a carbon tax on, it's going to just make it more expensive, and it's going to be harder for people to make a living. I want to go back and touch on one thing. You know, we want to be energy independent. This country turned to American agriculture to be part of that solution. And we built a whole infrastructure around uh, uh, renewable fuels. And we need not forget that farmers answered that call. That infrastructure is valuable to our rural communities, and it's valuable to our farmers to market their grain. I think that's the important thing we need to think about. Thank you, Mr. Duvall. I totally agree. Uh, Mr. Schellenberger, how do we best balance implementing climate solutions that don't raise the costs of food? For example, if we do a lot of different measures, it could make our beef, our pork, uh, vegetables and fruits much more expensive. And in the end, that affects the poorest amongst us. Those who are most food insecure will find themselves even more food insecure. So how do we balance this while we're protecting the most needy amongst us, in your view? Well, thank you for the question. I think there's a, a real serious misunderstanding because um, there's this idea that if you make things more expensive, that that's better for the natural environment. And that's just not the historical pattern. We find that by making uh, food production and energy production more efficient, they also uh, become better for the environment. So you just use less land uh, when farming, um, that's also part of reducing costs. Similarly, you mentioned before that carbon emissions peaked and have been declining since 2008 uh, very significantly. Um, that occurred not by making energy expensive, but by making uh, uh, energy more abundant and cheaper, particularly natural gas with the shale revolution. So I think that that should be the orientation. Anything that seeks to make energy more expensive is obviously regressive. Um, I think Democrats and progressives in every other context would oppose those things, just as we have tended to oppose uh, taxes on food. So I think the orientation should be heavily towards efficiency and productivity. Thank so you. We're looking at solutions. If they start to make energy and food expensive, that would be a red flag, uh, both for equity reasons, but also for environmental ones. Okay, thank you thank very much. And Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Bacon. And now... Uh, I recognize the uh, gentle lady from New Hampshire, my good friend, Ms. Custer. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for your leadership and your decision to hold this landmark hearing. I want to begin by noting the dedication and commitment of farmers and foresters in New Hampshire to reducing emissions and mitigating climate change on their land. They know perhaps better than any sector of our economy how climate change threatens their livelihoods. And we're seeing warning signs already. The USDA's Hubbard Brook Experimental Forest in my district has provided top-notch analysis through their work studying New Hampshire's climate for the past half century. They found our average annual temperature has already risen a staggering 2.6 degrees. Rainfall has increased, often in condensed periods of heavy storms, 
Flooding has become more common. And as the co-chair of the bipartisan ski task force, I want to point out that we have 10 fewer days of snow on the ground. Climate change shortens our maple sugaring season, complicates the growing season for our farmers, and brings more invasive species to our forests. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Our farmers and foresters have enough uncertainty to deal with running their business. Climate change is exacerbating those challenges. So one such effort is President Biden's 30 by 30 initiative, conserving 30% of our land and water by the year 2030. Our conservation heritage runs deep in the Granite State. And more needs to be done to ensure that private farmers and forest land will continue to serve their, this purpose as land prices rise. So my first question is for Zippy Duval. I know the Farm Bureau is proud to note over 100 million acres of farmland are now in conservation programs with the National Resources Conservation Service including 42% of agricultural land in New Hampshire. Could you speak about the importance of conservation from the Farm Bureau's perspective? Yes, ma'am, and thank you for the question. Of course, those conservation programs of putting land into conservation with USDA has been vitally important. And we put the least valuable, at least less productive lands in that area. Uh, so th that is extremely important. But we also have a huge moral responsibility to recognize that as the population grows, we got to feed them. We got to feed them. So we, we're interested in continuing those programs that you speak of, but we also want to see working land programs that helps us uh, uh, be more productive there and do, uh, do even better job for the climate in those areas. And that's going to require research and development dollars and an extension of education and broadband. It's just crucially important. But those programs are very important, and we're very proud to be part of that. Great. Thank you. And I 100% agree with you on the broadband. Uh, Ms. Knox, I appreciate hearing your initiatives. Your counterparts at the Cooperative Extension at the University of New Hampshire have been incredible partners to me and the farmers and foresters in my district. You mentioned the need for more research, as Zippy just did, to help foresters adapt to new climate conditions, as well as best practices for making working forests the most effective carbon sinks possible. From your perspective, how can Congress be most helpful in fostering this kind of research? I think that USDA already has a number of programs that are really geared towards Improving research in forestry, it, we certainly need to see more attention paid to that. Um, and I think, you know, we need to work with extension agents to identify not only the research that's there, but also to how to talk to landowners about, you know, planting more land. You have to pick the right trees, you have to pick the right location. And so it's not just a matter of the research on the trees themselves, but communicating how the landowners can use that um, you know, same thing works with what Zippy said about uh, technology. If you have information, but you don't have a way to get that to the farmers, then you've really lost a critical step. And that's really where extension falls in because they talk between, they're translators essentially between the scientists and the farmers. Um, and it works both ways because the scientists also need to hear from farmers because they need to know what's important to the farmers. And one last quick question. You talked about the overuse of fertilizers contributing to carbon emissions. 
Does your cooperative extension encourage farmers to adopt strategies like planting trees and perennial grass to reduce fertilizer usage and runoff? They, they provide a number of different solutions. Of course, you know, informing one solution does not fit everybody, but the extension agents use a variety of techniques to talk about, you know, what's the most responsible way to deal with farm on a case-by-case -case basis. So there are really dirts, on, you know, boots on the ground to look at what's happening for individual farmers. But yeah, they do talk about that quite a bit. Great. Well, thank you so much for being with us. My time is up. I yield back. Thank you, Ms. Custer. And now I recognize for five minutes, Mr. Johnson from South Dakota. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate that. You know, a couple of things. I, I have enjoyed the comments that my colleagues have made. Uh, I like Mr. Bacon talking about uh, America reducing its carbon footprint by 33% from, I think, 05 to 19. He said that's incredible progress. And then I liked uh, Mr. Scott, uh, Mr. Crawford, and others talking about the role that American ag producers have had in that environmental stewardship. Uh, and I think it's fantastic. You know, you just think about the impact that the Farm Bill, uh, this incredible piece of uh, legislation that uh, incentivizes and encourages good stewardship has had on clean water. You think about the impact, uh, 19.3 million acres um, where we have had uh, increased soil habitat, we've had uh, better uh, or, uh, soil health and habitat. Uh, there's just a lot of success story to be told here in agriculture. And of course, I was uh, glad to hear Mr. Duvall talk about the role of technology. I don't wanna be a home state braggart, but of course I do wanna recognize South Dakota State University and their uh, first in the nation four-year degree in precision agriculture, because I, I think that plays a role in, in good stewardship as well. Uh, but uh, Mr. Duvall, you, uh, I want to dive in a little bit deeper into a conversation that you noted that you and Secretary Vilsack had. We've been talking about a carbon bank, and um, there are a lot of questions I have about a carbon bank. You mentioned that uh, the Secretary uh, committed that it would not in any way come at the expense of Title I programs. Can you tell us a little bit more what, uh, what that conversation was like? Well, I think it was just out of uh, rumors that I were here. I was hearing that was referenced earlier in an earlier question. Uh, so I just point blank asked the secretary. He was very, but he didn't have to think about it at all. He says, "I understand how important the farm bill, Title One, all the uh, commodity programs are in conservation." And he he says, "You know, I don't have any interest in shorting them anything by using monies from that area that would go into climate." I, hey. Uh, Tom Vilsack, Secretary Vilsack, I think did a great job in the past, going to do a great job in the future. We look forward to working with him, and I was real satisfied with his answers. And so did, did you get the sense, and I know you're part of an alliance that has uh, been in favor of a carbon bank. I mean, is the CCC the, the mechanism that would be used, either in your understanding or, or what Secretary Vilsack relayed, to make these investments in a carbon bank? Our, our conversation did not go that far to talk about whether or not the CCC was to be used to do that. We, uh, I, I will tell you the historic alliance that I spoke of. Uh, we, 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 we are interested in having that carbon bank and, and looking forward to having that set up. And, and of course, uh, the, the fear that we get from the countryside of our farmers is, what does that really look like? 
And is it going to be valuable enough to me to actually make that commitment? How many regulations are going to be around it? And who's going to really make the money out of it? Is it going to be an additional revenue stream to me on my farm to help me uh, be, uh, be more uh, uh, assertive of doing more practices that are climate friendly? Or is someone in the middle going to make all that money? Of course, we do trust USDA more than we would some outside person handling. Well, and, I, and I'm glad you mentioned the kind of how does the money work thing, because hopefully you can educate me and some others about this. Uh, I mean, there are uh, high transaction costs. I think a number of experts indicate that that could be a real concern with something like a carbon bank. And, and I think some estimates are that uh, the highest recurring cost associated with carbon credits uh, would account for 50% uh, uh, of the cost. And, and under that kind of analysis, only 10% would actually get to the producer. And that doesn't seem like a very producer-focused mechanism in my mind. So, uh, Mr. Duvall, give us some sense of, of what your understanding of those costs would be. Well, I think they still haven't been discovered yet. And I think the biggest fear farmers have, they want to know what it, whether before they buy into it or before they support that. And before we support it, we got to know what that carbon bank looks like. And we got to know what kind of return it is back to our farmers. If it's 10%, I'm like you. I'm not sure that it's a really a viable program. I don't think you'll have a lot of people participate. Sure. Uh, looks like I'm, I'm uh, done to a little, uh, uh, very little time, but perhaps maybe the chair could give uh, you an indulgence of one more minute to answer my question. I mean, I do have concerns about a, a carbon bank and what exactly the federal government's role would be in it. I got to be honest with you, Zippy, I have loved working with you. Everybody in this committee trusts you and the Farm Bureau. You're good people. So give me some sense of what analysis made you all comfortable getting on board with, with a carbon bank. I mean, I, I just, I've got questions on impact on land prices, impacts on, on market conditions, on uh, private markets, on whether it should be performance-based or outcome-based. I mean, what got you to a point of comfort? Because I'm not there yet. Well, I, I'll admit to you, I'm not totally comfortable yet. But I'm ready to have the conversation of what that looks like and how we develop that market. And someone really smarter than me is going to have to figure that out. And I'm sure those smart people are out there. So I, I'm just as eager as you are to find out how this works and, and what the, because everybody wants to claim it as a, an, an alternative revenue stream to farmers. I want to know what that revenue stream looks like. And I want well, to know what percentage of that, that uh, carbon tax or carbon uh, market is going to return back to the farmer. Uh, there may be a time yeah. in the future when we as an organization may not support that, but we got to have a conversation about what that looks like. All right. And when we get those yeah. answers that you're asking for, we'll be glad to share them with you. <laughs> Mr. Chairman, thank yeah. you for your indulgence. I would yield back the negative time I have. You're quite welcome, but I must admit and assure you that uh, Zippy is indeed a very smart man. Uh, thank you for that. And uh, now, Miss um, Plaskett, you are now recognized for five minutes. Um, thank you so much. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. As, as the uh, subcommittee chair of the Biotechnology, Horticulture and Research Committee, I appreciate the committee's focus on climate change and its impact on our farmers and ranchers. This is a topic I care deeply about and one that my constituents are already facing. 
Early in the 116th Congress, the Biotechnology Subcommittee held a hearing on examining ways for farmers to increase resiliency and mitigate risk through research and extension. I'm so glad we're continuing that discussion here today. I'd like to direct my questions at Ms. Knox. In your testimony, you touched on the frequency of extreme weather events and how climate change can influence those events. This is something that is painfully familiar to my constituents in the U.S. Virgin Islands, who experienced two major back-to-back -back hurricanes in 2017 and have faced periods of drought in years since. Specifically, your testimony touched on flash droughts as an area of focus for your research. Can you elaborate more on this phenomena and why these droughts are so harmful to farmers and ranchers? Yes, ma'am. thank you for your question. Uh, flash droughts is an area of huge concern right now in agriculture. Flash drought, if you don't know, is, is a um, drought that comes on very rapidly. And so because it's coming on rapidly, uh, often with uh, either high temperatures or a complete lack of rainfall, or maybe some of both, um, really accelerates stress on plants. And of course, plants need to have regular amounts of rainfall or irrigation water to survive. And so when we have flash droughts, the plants can go from healthy and thriving to really stressed and, and sick plants in a very short time, sometimes even as much as a week. Um, and so our ability to identify those flash droughts at, is of course important because then it will tell the farmers they need to do something about it. But we also need to be able to plan for what can you do to help, you know, keep your plants alive during these times of flash drought. And so um, you can use irrigation. You can grow different kinds of crops. You can do cover crops, which keep more soil uh, moisture available. Uh, but all of those are things that need to be looked at. And flash droughts, uh, one of the projects we're working on right now looks at soil moisture and measuring soil moisture, because that's an important piece of information that farmers need to have. And yet there's not a lot of really inexpensive uh, pieces of equipment that people can use to do that. So some of the projects I'm working on right now are to identify some of these less expensive ways to monitor soil moisture and provide that information to the farmers in a way that they can use it to put on just the right amount of water. They don't need to overwater, but they need to put on enough water to keep the plants alive. Thank you. What um, is the role of cooperative extension, helping our farmers and ranchers become more resilient, particularly for those who are small scale and limited resource producers? I think cooperative extension pays a really critical role um, because there's a lot of research that's out there, but it isn't necessarily getting to those small producers in a form that is useful to them. So cooperative extension really serves as a way to translate some of that research into useful information. And I'm a pragmatist, so I wanna make sure that whatever information is provided is useful and, and is in the right format for those producers. And so um, every situation is different. You have to go out in the fields, perhaps. A lot of the extension agents spend significant amounts of time walking the fields with their farmers. And so they know they really know the needs of those particular farmers, and the, it could be big farmers or small farmers. But they need to be able to talk um, in such a way that the information that's provided by the scientists is useful, and they need to listen to the farmers 
and tell the scientists what they should be working on because scientists can't really work in a vacuum either. Okay, so, thank you. In, this, in the short time that I have left, can you say what additional research needed to better understand how climate change will impact farmers and ranchers and how USDA can help close those knowledge gaps? And after your answer, I yield back. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, some of the research that we don't really know very much about is we know that climate change is going to impact temperatures. We don't know really how well it's going to impact things like solar radiation or, or moisture balance in the soils because those are secondary things. And they're de they depend on a lot of other things that are not as easy to resolve, say, in climate models. For example, the cloud cover, um, which obviously controls the amount of sunlight. But sunlight is important to the growth of many crops. And if you have cloudy conditions, if you've got a lot of rain or just cloudy conditions, then it's very difficult to plan how fast the crops are going to grow. And so looking at some of the secondary variables that are really important for agriculture, which include things like uh, soil temperature and humidity um, and, and um, things like degree days and how fast they accumulate, uh, cloudy conditions are all important. I yield back, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for the time. Of course. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, we have had a call of votes. This is an important hearing. Uh, we got a wonderful panel, and we got members that want to make sure they're recognized for questions. So my excellent staff and I have walked out, worked out a procedure that we're going to do where we will keep our hearing going as some of our members go. And as you go, Remember, please, as soon as you come back, to make sure you contact the staff and let us know that you're back in position. Now, it just been it has just been called, and uh, let's see, where's my? I had a list of no the um, oh here it is. Okay, uh, these are the next five Democrats and Republicans who will be recognized. And the reason I'm calling their names is hopefully they will be here and vote. Others who are further down can leave and then come back quickly. So, Mr. Bard, you're next. Then that is followed by Ms. Bustos. And then Mr. Hagedorn. And then Ms. Gabrigel. And then Ms. Craig and Ms. Cloud. That's six, one, two, three, four, five, six. Six people at five minutes gives us a good half hour here now. And these six can go and hopefully some of you all who are leaving now, whose names have not been called, you can leave and hurry back within the next uh, 30 or 40 minutes and we can keep it going. I think that is our strategy. 
Okay. Now, I assure you that everyone will be recognized. This is an extraordinarily important hearing, and we can work this out. So uh, those of you whose names I haven't called, please feel free to go. We're coordinating with the floor, and they will allow you to vote as soon as you get there and so you can return. Thank you. Is that right? I see Ann here. Is there? Did I do all right, Ann? Okay, Ann says I did. Now we'll recognize Ms. Bar Mr. Bard. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. For five minutes. Uh, I, really, I really appreciate uh, you and the ranking member uh, having this very important meeting. Uh, it really gives a platform to highlight agriculture and its importance uh, to providing uh, practical solutions to uh, this climate change. And so uh, it is extremely uh, relevant, and I'm so uh, so pleased to be a part of it. Uh, my first, uh, my first uh, comment really goes to Mr. Brown, and it is uh, just a comment uh, because I think it leads to my question to Mr. Duval next. Uh, but you know, it's exciting to see the soil samples that you held, Mr. Brown, uh, and the changes you made in that 20-year period uh, and the relevance of capturing carbon in the soil, uh, the black color and the interaction of that carbon and its importance in helping uh, improve productivity. So anybody that knows anything about soils, those two soil samples you held up, uh, were just uh, very informative. And so it looks to me like uh, with the one slide you had, you were able to move in a 20-year period, I think 1993 to 2013, uh, from 1% or less than 1% carbon in the soil and uh, went to a level of 7%. So it's exciting to see uh, that we have, and farmers and ranchers, I've been already incorporating things that help carbon capture, and I think that's important. So now uh, I need to get on to my question, and that really, uh, uh, you alluded to it before, Mr. Duvall, but it has to do with the regulatory um, uh, concerns for livestock feed. Uh, you know, the development and livestock's been a part of my life, uh, really all my life. Grew up in West Central Indiana, I went to Purdue, so, um, animals and a PhD in monogastric nutrition all contributed to my uh, concern about uh, livestock. And so uh, you mentioned that uh, greenhouse gases and the emissions associated with livestock and so on. So uh, feed additives have been shown to reduce methane levels produced by ruminants by as much as 30%. Uh, the addition of enzymes to chicken feed uh, can also uh, improved protein digestibility, which helps reduce nitrogen emissions from the manure. Uh, probiotics help animal feed and improve the gut health of the animal. Uh, not only do these additives increase the nutritional value of the feed and lower the cost of production for the farmers, but it ends up being a win-win situation because we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So as you mentioned earlier, uh, many of these innovative products lack a suitable regulatory uh, product category, 
and they end up being uh, uh, in, involved in uh, as animal drugs rather than being a feed additive. And so I'm pleased to see that the Food and Agriculture Climate Alliance, FACA, uh, that the Farm Bureau has founded, identified the need to expedite and reduce this regulatory burden uh, in regard to FDA feed additive approvals. So uh, having said that, I'd like to give you the opportunity to comment on what you think we need to do to streamline those FDA uh, approval process and uh, if there are any incentives or rewards that we can use to help producers, producers utilize this kind of technology. So Dr. Duvall. Well, Congressman, uh I, I'm a farmer and I'm an agriculture farmer. I dairied for 30 years uh, and also worked for my dad as a child for 20 other years after the, before that. Uh, and now I have beef cattle and this is my 34th year of growing chickens. And and I'll tell you that diet and environment keeps is is the most uh, is the first area that you can improve your your uh, farm more than anything. You know, animals eat grass, and grass could sequesters carbon. So it all works together, and it kind of plays off what uh, Mr. Brown was saying. Uh, the regulatory system, and, and I, I will uh, admit to you, I don't know that I can give you the recommendations, but I will sure seek my staff on it to give you some recommendations about that in writing afterwards. Uh, but we know that it's very cumbersome. It takes too long. It, it takes to, you know, these companies go out and develop these additives that are food additives that helps us do this. And they put, put a tremendous dollars into to creating them. And then they have to sit on the shelf at FDA and, 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 and the chemicals, not chemicals, but the, uh, the things that we use to grow plants uh, to head off pests and disease. They sit on the shelf and they, they're just drilled to death for years and years and years. And by the time they get to the field, the new one's already on the shelf, but waiting to be approved the next time. We shouldn't be that way. We have people to feed. We have Americans hungry. We need to keep food affordable. We need to be as efficient as we can. And the only way we can do that is tear down that uh, streamline that system so that we can have the innovation and research reach the farm quicker. Absolutely. Thank you for your comments. Any other witness would care to comment about that? Mr. Bond, your time is uh, up. Now we'll recognize Ms. Bustos for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chair. My question is for Mr. Brown. Um, in your testimony, you mentioned the benefits of sustainable practices and how they can help sequester carbon, increase water capacity and absorption, build resilience and mitigate risk. These themes are consistent with the goals of something that I wrote out of my office called the Rural Green Partnership. Um, that's a framework of policies and principles that are geared toward getting rural America involved in the climate conversation and making sure that we play a part in spurring economic growth in our part of the country. Um, so as a member of Congress who represents a district where ag is our main economic driver um, and as chair of one of the subcommittees on, on this committee, the uh, General Farm Commodities and Risk Management, these are all issues that are top of mind uh, for me because they're top of mind for the growers and producers that I'm lucky enough to represent. 
in uh, northwestern and central Illinois. Um, so over the past few weeks, we've been hosting a series of roundtables, and in every single one of them, um, our growers and our producers are talking about how they're engaging in sustainable best practice like cover cropping, no-till farming, but, but they don't feel that the federal incentives match up with the work that they're putting in on the farm. So, Mr. Brown, and then um, I, I would like you to go first, and then maybe Mr. Duvall, if you have something to add. Um, here's my question for the two of you. Where do you see potential for increased federal investment and incentives to help more farmers adopt these practices while also rewarding those who have already been active in this, in this space? That is also something that we've gotten some questions on. Um, again, Mr. Brown, if you can go first, please. Thank you. Thank you for the work you're doing. Uh, where it begins is, at a, as I said before, in education. You don't know what you don't know. We need to in educate farmers and ranchers as to these principles. We need to show them that by applying these principles, they can significantly not only mitigate climate change, but they can significantly lower their input costs and increase their profitability. We seem to get hung up here on production and yield in pounds. And yes, we need to, we need to feed America, but what most don't realize is that production increases as we use these regenerative practices. Also, not only does production increase, but the nutrient density of our foods increases significantly. And I think that's been totally in, overlooked. We wanna help the underserved. Let's increase the nutrient density. The only way we can increase nutrient density of foods is through healthy soils on land-based produced foods. Take a look at the work that Dr. Stefan Van Vliet is doing at Duke University Medical Center using a mass spectrometer to measure over 2,500 different phytonutrient compounds in food. He is doing work currently that is showing a significant difference between food grown in the current production model and food grown in the regenerative model. Farmers and ranchers need to learn about this, and then they need to be rewarded with on outcome-based for the principles that they produce, for the principles that they enact. We cannot keep going down this model where the only incentive is based on yield in pounds. It does no good if we're feeding our society cardboard. Take a look at the facts. We're spending twice as much on healthcare as we are on food. Now, I'm, not, I'm all in favor of lowering the cost of food, from the standpoint that, but we have to do it in a way that brings profitability back to the farm and ranch. I agree totally with Mr. Duvall on that. We have to increase profitability to the farms and ranches. He talked about margins being razor thin. Well, I'm sorry, one of the reasons I don't uh, accept any government programs or subsidies is because I, can, I have decent margins because I've been able to lower my input costs due to the fact that I've enacted these principles. We, it all goes back to education. Thank you for your question. Please, this committee has the ability to make sure that we educate through NRCS, through extension, and through other means. Thank you. 
Very good. Mr. Duvall, I'm going to pass on you answering anymore because I have eight seconds left. And left. Mr. Chair, I yield back. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Brown. And uh, thank you. Uh, I want to recognize now uh, the gentleman from Minnesota, uh, Mr. Hagedorn. Thank you, Madam Chair. I appreciate that. It's good to be at the hearing today. And Mr. Schellenberger, I appreciated your presentation and the way it showed. It demonstrated that farmers in America are already doing things to be sustainable and to uh, manage their land properly. And in many instances, of course, we lead the world and all that. But I find it really difficult to have a hearing about the effects of uh, so-called man-made climate change and what we need to do about it with agriculture and not address the proposals out there that would change the energy sector in this country and what that would do to sustainability of our farmers from generation to generation and the profitability of our farmers and keeping the price of food affordable for the American people. Now, President Duvall, I, let me ask you, I'm going to list a few programs here and I'd like you to let me know if the Farm Bureau affirmatively supports any of these energy policies that are proposed by the Democratic Party at this time in one nature or another, whether it's the president or the Congress. So obviously these are all like the Green New Deal. Uh, first of all, the cancellation of the Keystone Pipeline. I'll read these out and just let me know if you support any of them. Cancellation of the Keystone Pipeline, imposing a carbon tax, uh, Obama's clean power plan, a ban on fracking, rejoining the Paris Accord, imposing livestock ban, uh, uh, enacting a cap and trade system or mandating the phase out of the combustion engine at a certain point and the end of gasoline and ethanol use as we know it today. Does the Farm Bureau support any of that? Sir. What's that? No, sir, we do not support any of those movements. And, that, and that's my point. If you're worried about farmers and sustainability, these are the types of policies that are gonna dramatically drive up the cost of energy for agriculture, agribusinesses, and make it darn near impossible for most of our, provider, our, our, our providers to stay in business and to produce affordable, affordable food and an array of products for our people. I mean, in some, uh, depending on the commodity prices and the cost of uh, fuel, 30 to 40% of the cost of producing a bushel of corn can be energy. So all these policies are very highly inflationary and are gonna hurt our farmers. Now, Mr. Schellenberger, what I, in a recent 60 Minutes interview, uh, billionaire Bill Gates suggested that established nations like the United States should transition from to eating fake synthetic plant-based beef. And he even went on to say that government should force regulation of fake meat to force consumers to comply if they didn't like the taste effectively. Now, based upon your presentation, does Bill Gates or this type of recommendation, is that you know, based upon any accurate understanding of the U.S. beef industry? Well, I can't be, I didn't see the 60 Minutes, so I can't specifically comment on it other than to just observe that it would be impossible for um, any government to mandate uh, uh, particular diets. Um, just about 4% uh, of the population is vegetarian, uh, and most vegetarians uh, eat some form of meat during the year. Um, you know, my view is that we should continue to innovate for alternatives to, to meat production, uh, but certainly not mandate it. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, the, the meat industry has done a very good job at reducing 
their impact on land, particularly the transition from pasture beef towards uh, more conventional concentrated beef production has been astounding. So, um, yeah, I mean, I support the yeah. innovation. I, I don't think we're going to yeah. mandate that. Well, let me reclaim my time. There, there's plenty of opportunity for the federal government and Democrats in Congress to mandate. They're going to mandate all these things that has to do with energy and what kind of cars we can drive and what kind of energy is produced. There's no reason to think that they couldn't come forward and try to mandate that we could no longer have livestock production in our country the way we have it and that we would need to move towards plant-based diets. So I would say that the biggest threat to production agriculture's future in the United States isn't so-called man-made climate change. The biggest threat to production agriculture's future in the United States is the Green New Deal and these extreme climate change agenda policies of the majority party. And raising the cost of energy is something that should be addressed by this, by this committee. We should have a hearing on it because when you dramatically raise the cost of energy, you're going to undercut the profitability of farmers and you're gonna take generational farmers and run them out of business. And we're gonna disrupt this incredible system of agriculture that we have in our country. With that, I yield back. Thank you very much. I want to recognize the gentleman from California, uh, Mr. Carbajal. You're recognized for five minutes. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much, uh, Madam Chair. Um, I represent one of the most beautiful places on earth, the central coast of California. It features some of the most diverse habitats in North America, and it's also home to a robust and diverse range of agriculture products or production, should I say. Over the past decade, California has become more prone to weather extremes and the Central Coast is no exception. Our community has felt the climate change crisis in a multitude of ways, more severe droughts, increasing frequency of heat waves and record setting wildfires. Producers in my district are utilizing funding from environmental quality incentive programs, EQIP, and the Conservation Stewardship Program, CSP. While I'm glad to see farm operations in my district using important conservation practices, I have also heard that access to these programs can be improved. Mr. Duvall, can you discuss the role of USDA conservation programs in addressing climate change and helping farmers build resiliency? Can you speak to the demand for USDA's conservation programs? Well, thank you, sir, for the question. And I will, I will tell you that uh, those conservation programs are widely used. Uh, and I will tell you there were a lot more people that apply for them that actually receive them because they run out of funds. There's not enough funds there to, to complete every project that a farmer would put forward. Uh, so I think a lot of it is limited by the amount of funds that the secretary has to put in those areas. But they're widely used and they're widely popular. Thank you. Agriculture employers are constantly challenged by unpredictable weather, and they now have an ever-increasing need to protect farm workers from extreme weather concerns. Ms. Knox and Mr. Cantori, can you talk to me about the effects climate change has on farm workers? What health risks may they experience while working in extreme weather conditions, including poor air quality due to smoke? Let me start off by saying that uh, 
there are several different ways that farm workers are affected by it. One is by the likelihood of increased heat stress. Farmers working outside, um, especially as temperatures go up, um, are more prone to have heat-related diseases. And so um, people who, who hire them have to make sure that they're providing um, appropriate health-related cooling areas or whatever, or modifying hours to make sure that the heat stress is not building up on that. But as you point out, the air quality, especially in the Western United States, is a very huge concern for uh, people that are working outside. We've seen that with the, the vineyards and some of the vineyards that have really been uh, hit by the fires out west and, and how that smoke is really carried a long ways. Um, but I'll, I'll stop so I can let uh, Mr. Cantori answer that as well. I mean, I you know when you when you take a look at the, the fire situation just last year, four million acres burned. The pictures that we saw out of San Francisco looked like some kind of movie set, uh, but that was real, <laughs> and, and those people had to breathe that air for days. Um, you know, workers uh, alike. Uh, so so if we get into a situation where these droughts worsen and we get into these mega droughts that go year after year after year, and you increase four million acres two to six times. Uh, it's not only San Francisco and the vineyards that are going to be dealing with uh, poor air quality. It, it may be the whole state. As a matter of fact, it's not just the whole state. A lot of that air, that poor air quality is carried east into other states, across the Rockies, into the plains, into the southeast, heck, down here in Atlanta. Uh, Pam, you probably have seen, you know, the, the smoky skies, and it's not from the African dust, but the smoke from the wildfires in the west. So everybody suffers. Um, for, from this, and, and that's, to me, you know, one of the worst things in terms of air quality. Thank you both for your answers. Uh, I happen to have uh, agriculture as the number one industry in my district. And at the same time, I come from a family of farm workers. So I happen to see it from both perspectives. And I really do appreciate your answers. Uh, with that, uh, I yield back, Mr. Chair. Thank you. I want to recognize recognize the uh, gentleman from Texas, Mr. Cloud. You have five minutes, sir. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation. Uh, it is extremely important that we do have a discussion on how to, uh, how to steward our nation's resources. Mr. Brown, I have to say, uh, not to invite myself over, but I, I do hope that one day I can visit uh, what you're doing there. It seems like you're doing some great work. Uh, you mentioned that your regenerative, your regenerative farming practices are able to produce more per acre while also uh, increasing profit and being more effective. Is, is that what I understood? That is correct, and we're doing it in Texas also. Okay, well, that's, that's even closer, so maybe I'll have to stop by. So there's a built-in incentive already uh, to, to move this way, am I correct? That, that is correct. I didn't get any incentives. I did it all on my own. I did, I did though, early on, take advantage of uh, EQIP and CSP contracts through NRCS. That was an important part of me starting down this path. But as soon as I was financially able to do it on my own, I would rather see that money go for other underserved or, or people who, who are starting out. So there's some uh, initial costs getting started, but once you got started, it was self-sustaining is, is, I guess, what you're saying, right? That is correct. And, uh, and you were able 
I mean, this was just a motivation in your heart to do, right? This was voluntary. This was. No, okay. <laughs> no, my story was I, I started no-tilling actually in 1993. That I started on my own because it made good sense in my semi-brittle environment. Then what happened the years 1995 through 1998, I lost three years crops to hail and one more year to drought. And financially, I was going broke. And I had to figure a way, how can I make my soils, my resource productive without all the expensive inputs? And that sent me on an education and learning process. Uh, at times, you learning from land-grant institutions. At times, learning from other producers, learning from ARS. ARS was very important in my learning. And I picked up bits and pieces and learned these principles and learned that they can truly work anywhere in the world where there's land-based agriculture. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I like to say that the road to $30 trillion of debt is paid with good intentions. Um, of course, we do have a role to play here in the federal government, and there are important investments we need to make. Uh, Mr. Duvall, or, or I'm not sure if you're the best one to answer this, do you have an estimate on how much it would cost to establish and operate a carbon bank? No, sir, I'm not qualified to answer that question. Or, or anyone else? I, I don't know if anyone else does. No? Okay. I mean, currently, we have some, volu some volunteer carbon banks in place, and right now, uh, the highest cost, my understanding, in operating them is is the cost of verification. Uh, basically, it's the bureaucratic burden. Only 10% of it goes to the farmer. Uh, and so in pragmatic terms, I, I don't know many programs where the government has done things more efficiently. So I, ha I do have some concerns in that because pragmatically, and this would be typical of, of many federal governments, is basically we would be taking $10 of investment out of another industry that also needs to make gains, transferring it to the through the federal government to the ag industry, $8 of that would be lost in the bureaucracy somewhere and only $1 would go to the farmer. Um, and while that would be some small benefit to the farmer, a lot of the overall cost of what we could accomplish basically would be lost in a federal bureaucracy. So it seems to me that we have to be very careful about overreaching here. I think uh, as been stated, uh, communication, education, on the best practice is extremely important. And I would say not mandating the best practices. I wonder if Mr. Brown would have been able to make the advancements, advancements he made if we locked in the best practices of 20 years ago uh, as a mandate. Uh, what allowed that to happen is an, uh, is an environment that allows for innovation. And, uh, and to that point, you know, I'd like to, to just say, Mr. Schellenberger, I really appreciated your balanced testimony uh, and information-based evaluation of the state we're in as a nation. You know, too often we see uh, the road left to the advancements that we still need to, to make, uh, and sometimes those get, those get demonized and we don't take the time to, to remember how much progress we have made. And could you uh, just summarize and recap uh, the United States, among other nations, the innovations we've made toward effective and sustainable farming? Yeah, I mean, gosh, there's so many of them, right? Um, we're a huge innovator. Um, I mean, all of the technologies in your iPhone, in those GPS-driven tractors, they all come from the United States. Is, is up. The gentleman's time is up. 
I apologize. Thank you, sir. Uh, sorry. All right. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to recognize the uh, gentleman from California, uh, Mr. Harder. You're recognized for five minutes. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, thank you so much to Chairman Scott and uh, uh, Chairwoman Adams, and thank you for hosting this hearing on this important topic. And thank you so much to the witnesses for, for uh, contributing your testimonies. I think that in our valley, we've really seen. I represent the California. Uh, Central Valley. We've seen farmers on the forefront of climate change, especially in our district. Uh, we've seen farmers face wildfires, face droughts, face floods, and I know how much the, the changing climate can impact them. It's not just affecting some polar bear on an Arctic somewhere else. It's affecting the everyday lives of every uh, farmer and, and, and grower throughout uh, our, our community. Um, and I think folks really want to be part of the solution. Um, we've seen, I've, I've spent a lot of time with our Farm Bureau discussing updating farm equipment, uh, using low-dust harvesters on, on almond orchards. Uh, and frankly, there's a lot of interest, but folks on the ground often express some of the financial challenges in, in purchasing or, or updating uh, their equipment or, or technology or needing staffing assistance to keep growing their, their climate updates. One of my constituents shared that for her almond orchard, it would cost about $200,000 uh, for a low-dust harvester and an additional $70,000 for a low-emission tractor. And so, you know, with all my, I, my work in business and, and startups, that was my background uh, before coming to Congress. I understand how these decisions are, are, are made, and I understand that they really need to make financial sense if ag operators are going to, to move them forward. Uh, so we've worked a lot with ag groups and, and environmental groups to introduce uh, the Farm Act, which I think is one of the only bills that is actually endorsed by uh, our, our, our local farm bureaus as well as by uh, a number of environmental groups all around uh, ensuring that we can make sure that we're moving towards more agricultural resilient practices. It basically creates a federal partnership for farmers to access financing, which would provide grants uh, that support climate-friendly projects. It also creates a pilot program for, for pyrolysis, uh, which essentially helps convert tree nut byproducts into climate-friendly biocarbon, a really important effort, especially in the California Central Valley. So uh, my question is actually for, for you, Mr. Duvall. Uh, as the president of the American Farm Bureau, with such a wide-ranging network of members uh, across our district, what have you heard are the financial needs of farmers in this space? And how can Congress or the federal government support farmers when making those financial decisions uh, towards more climate resiliency? Thank you. Well, thank you for the question, Congressman, and you're exactly right. That's, you know, other than trying to figure out how some of these pro programs are going to work and what regulations come along with it and the burden that comes with it, it's the cost. You're exactly right. What is it going to cost me to put this practice on the ground? What new equipment am I going to have to buy? And, and it, then, you know, you're exactly right. My membership goes from small, medium, large, different size organizations. A large organization might can afford that $200,000 piece of equipment, but a small operator can't, and, and it makes it just not feasible for him to do that. So uh, I, I think if we have practices or we have policies put in effect, we have to make sure that there's monies that follow that practice or that policy, monies that are going to help farmers in the system enable to, uh, to, to, to put those practices on the ground. And whether it's all federal government or whether it's uh, private or in public together and how all that fits together, uh, someone else would have to figure that out. But you're exactly right. It's very expensive for some of those new projects to be put on the ground. 
and the new policy is going to be put into effect and there need to be money to follow it. If Americans and the rest of the world want agriculture to be the answer to this problem, then then, then we got to have partners to be able to, to meet those uh, obligations that we have, we're going to have to meet to, to be successful in doing it. So as well said, Mr. Javal, thank you for that. Um, we look forward to working with, with you. Um, we've got strong partners with our local Farm Bureau, and I think uh, there, there is a lot of interest. That's the good news. I mean, I think folks want to be able to adopt uh, 21st century technology, 21st century practices. They just want to know how to pay for it. Uh, and I, I totally get that. I mean, it has to make business sense. And the question is, as, as legislators, how can we help them uh, have it make a business sense? And um, I, I think we're, we're looking forward to working with you and on, on some ideas for that. Thank you so much for your time. And I, I yield back the remainder. Uh, Ms. Adams, thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to recognize the gentleman from Kansas, um, Mr. Mann, five minutes. Thank you uh, for, for the time. Um, thank you, Chairman Scott, for your remarks about ensuring that agriculture is in the pole position in these discussions and that we highlight the climate solutions that are produced by agriculture while our producers feed, fuel, and clothe the, not only the country, but really the world. Uh, I proudly grew up on a farm in Quinter, uh, Kansas, population 800. Our, I was a fifth generation to live in my house. Uh, my folks and, and my brother uh, still run our farming operation. Uh, you know, we raise corn, uh, milo, wheat, had a preconditioning feed yard, spent thousands of hours on a tractor, combine, um, doctor and sick calves. Um, really a privilege to get to grow up there. And I think it's important in these discussions that we all remember that agriculture also is the lifeblood to keeping a lot of our basic values alive that we hold dear in this country. Those values being, you know, faith, family, um, looking out for our neighbors, working hard. You know, the, the values that are central to us as Americans are supported by agriculture, which makes these discussions all the more important. Um, I proudly represent the big first district of Kansas, uh, one of the biggest ag producing districts in the country. We are number one in the country on beef production. We are number one in the country on wheat production, number one on sorghum production, number three on corn production. We also have biofuels, um, food processors, dairies. That's a privilege and honor to get to, get to represent um, these groups. My question um, also is for Mr. Duvall. So I don't know if you remember this, Mr. Duvall. I was our Lieutenant Governor of Kansas, and uh, you and I um, were in Southwest Kansas in Garden City and um, checked out some water technology farms and spent the day together. Really enjoyed that day. Would have been almost uh, two and a half, three years ago. You know, one of my big takeaways, and my question will be for you, Mr. Duvall, like I said, is, and I think one thing we got to continue to highlight is we all should be encouraged to hear about the strides that American farmers and ranchers have made in addressing and mitigating carbon, um, especially with the reduction of agriculture's share of greenhouse gas emissions from 24% in 2010 all the way down to 10% here uh, in 2019. So in nine years, we've gone from 24% down to 10%. Remarkable. And I guess my question, um, for you, Mr. Duvalis, can you explain how that reduction was made by farmers and ranchers in the U.S. in your mind, um, even as they continue to provide a safe, reliable, and affordable food supply? It's an amazing accomplishment. We need to keep highlighting it. And just curious to know your perspective. Uh, many of your members were part of that. And, and how do we go about accomplishing that? Sure, and there's not one answer that answers that question because, uh, because you know, we talked about all of them here, uh, the opportunity to participate in the programs through USDA that are partnerships and and, uh, and incentive-based. Uh, our farmers have latched onto that. Uh, uh, technology, 
that has come from the research from uh, uh, whether it be the plant and how we can uh, not have to disturb the soil to get rid of weeds, but we can control them with other uh, other products. And we can do it um, with GPS and, and, and precision plant uh, uh, farming. Uh, so we have just come a long way in the techniques that we use, but we can do that because of the technology. And we could go so much further if we go back and talk about streamlining the approval of these new technologies coming, uh, increase the research. And we can even do more to not just lower our emissions, but to help uh, take in some, take care of some of the problems of the emissions from other areas of, of other industries. So it, there's not one answer that one one answer that answers that question. Our farmers are resilient, and they are uh, technique technical savvy, uh, and and they will take advantage of every opportunity. And we got to have broadband to make sure that we can take care uh, to use utilize the, the new technologies that's coming in the future because. Precision agriculture is here, and our farmers aren't wearing overalls anymore. That's right. They're carrying computers and iPads around with them to get the job done, and broadband is important to that. In your part of the state, and that travel, that, that visit was wonderful. I absolutely fell in love with that part of our country. Well, glad, glad, to, yep, glad to have you, and, and you really touched my next question, and that is, you, you know, in my view, we've, rural broadband has got to be part of this discussion because to really continue to improve on carbon, we've got to have precision agriculture and rural broadband is the technological underpinning of that. So I could not agree with you more. Uh, Mr. Duvall, uh, thank you for, for all of our you know, panelists today. Really appreciate your time. And with that, I yield back. Thank you. I want to recognize now the uh, uh, gentlelady from the state of Washington, Dr. Schreier, you are recognized five minutes. Well, thank you, Madam Chair. Um, some of the biggest concerns that I hear from farmers in my district in Washington state have to do with concerns about declining snowpack year over year and therefore uh, less reliable water resources for irrigation that will only worsen over time because of our changing climate. Um, and that's why researchers at Washington State University's Tree Fruit Research and Extension Center in Wenatchee, Washington, are exploring ways to sustainably secure and more efficiently use water. And their goal is, of course, to help farmers and growers produce food given scarce and unpredictable water resources. And they've actually discovered uh, that grape growers can achieve better yields with less water. So with the changing climate, we do need both resilience and adaptation. Now, I want to focus on regenerative farming, which has been discussed so thoroughly today. And mostly how the federal government can support farmers. So as discussed, uh, regenerative agriculture refers to a constellation of practices like crop rotation, cover crops, and, and no and low-till farming that improve soil health, sequester carbon, reduce the need for fertilizer and water inputs, improve yields, and also help mitigate and adapt to climate change. Now, these practices help farmers and also key elements in addressing climate change. So farmers are driving, as we've heard today, so much of the innovation and leading efforts to expand these practices. And after upfront investments, these are, are win-wins for farmers, as we heard from Mr. Brown. But there's big front-end expenses, like drill seeding machines. And the payoff often doesn't happen until about six years later. 
And I'm really excited by the Biden administration's commitment to climate solutions, including these agricultural solutions. So what I would like to ask is how the USDA programs can help scale up. Um, for example, USDA's EQIP program provides financial and technical on the ground assistance for conservation and regenerative agriculture. And so I guess my question first is, is to President Duvall, could you say like, how else can the federal government help and how could we ensure lasting help that could get farmers all the way through those six years? Well, of course, you're exactly right. It takes a tremendous investment to move in that direction. Even Mr. Brown admitted that uh, he took advantage of some of those programs. And, and then earlier, I made uh, made uh, the statement, and I, and I know it's true, that there are farmers that want to participate, but there's not enough funds there to do that. And, and you're exactly right. That no-tail machine, it costs a lot of money. And if you're not a, if you're not a medium or large-sized farmer, you may not be able to afford that. Right. I even asked farmers if they could share, like if you could have one for the entire town and you can't do that, they all plant at the same time. Well, the Soil and Water Conservation District here owns one and you can you can rent it from them. You know, there are sharing going on and, that, and that's a program that's very well used here in my community. You know, we, uh, so there are ways to do this. We just have to explore how doing it, but there are more people wanting to be involved in it. They're interested in doing it. They just want to, they don't want anybody to force it on them because every farm's different. And I think uh, Mr. Brown made the point that his techniques works anywhere in the world. I don't disagree with that, but there's a, but there are a lot of differences in soils and regions and weather patterns and everything else. Some work good, some work better. And we just have to, we can't want have one thing that fits all. Absolutely. Um, thank you. I, I was going to ask a little bit about carbon credits, but I don't know that I have time for that. Can I ask just maybe in 30 seconds, um, maybe Mr. Brown, can you tell me a little bit about biochar and whether that's being implemented widely, whether that's something that could even be scaled? Thank you. Thank you. Biochar is certainly a tool that can be used in the right context. Again, it comes back to carbon. So. In your situation, obviously in Washington state, you have sources of that carbon available where biochar could be made. I would use that as a tool starting out. I would look at the Johnson Sioux bioreactor of adding biology. And then also a hidden gem you have is the bread lab there in Washington state. The work that Dr. Stephen Jones is doing is just unbelievable with perennial grains. Oh, fantastic. I have one more thing. I'm running out of time, which is just that um, I agree with everybody today that we need to have farmers at the table. And that's why I have invited uh, Robert Bonney, USDA's Deputy Chief of, of Staff for Policy and Senior Advisor on Climate to my district um, in order to sit down at a roundtable with my farmers to talk about climate policy, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And um, our farmers need to be at the table. I would like to submit that letter for the record. Thank you. I yield back. Thank you. Uh, I want to recognize the gentle lady from Illinois, uh, Representative Miller. You are recognized for five minutes. Is Representative Miller? Okay. All right. Uh, the gentle lady is not. Uh, 
I don't see her. Okay. Um, I want to uh, recognize now the gentleman from Alabama. Uh, Mr. Moore, you are recognized for five minutes, sir. All right. Uh, the um, gentlelady from Florida, Miss um, Kamek, you are recognized for five minutes. The gentlelady is Miss Kamek here. Gentlelady from okay. The gentlelady from um, from Minnesota, uh, Miss Fishbach, you are recognized for five minutes. Mm -hmm. The, the gentleman from New York, Mr. Jacobs, you recognized for five minutes, sir. The gentleman from, from Iowa, um, Mr. Finstruck, you are recognized for five minutes. Yes, Mr. Finstruck. Okay. So you got to plug this in some kind of way. Uh, Mr. Finstra, the, ge the gentleman from, uh, I is that Iowa? Uh, Mr. No, the gentleman from North Carolina, Mr. Rouser, you are recognized for five minutes, sir. The gentleman from Ohio, uh, Mr. Balderson, you're recognized for five minutes, okay. Let me go to uh, the gentleman from California, Mr. Panetta. Mr. Panetta, you are recognized. Thank you, go Madam Chair. Thank you, Madam Chair. Am I good to go? You're good to go. go ahead. Uh -huh. There you go. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, fortunate to just sit down in my uh, seat. Hey, thanks to all the witnesses for being here. Appreciate your preparation and your contribution. I know it's been a uh, a long uh, hearing and I appreciate your patience with this. So I uh, appreciate your preparation and of course your participation in a, in a very, very important hearing. And obviously thanks to the chairman for holding it as well as the ranking member, GT. Um, look, I, I think uh, if, if there's anybody concerned, at least in my experience with my producers on the central coast of California, if there's anybody concerned with fresh air, healthy soils and clean water, it's our producers. And I think that's been made evident today uh, with uh, the similar sentiments that have been expressed not only from our witnesses, but from the members on both sides of the aisle. And uh, I, I believe in my conversations and my work with my ag producers, uh, they value and understand a concept that maybe some of you have or have not heard about. It's called usufruct. Uh, it, and basically, it's the temporary right to use the land, USA to produce fruit, fruit fructus, usufruct. And what that means is that they, I believe our producers understand that they're here, they can they use the land, but they also gotta preserve it for our future because they know it's not theirs, it's a temporary right. And, and that's important because I believe that when it comes to dealing with the climate crisis, I can tell you, our producers understand that. And our producers, therefore, as we've heard throughout this hearing, need to be at the table. And I also want to uh, give a shout out and acknowledge our, our new uh, USDA secretary, uh, Bill Sack, for his vision to ensure that our farmers are at the table. And I believe it's our obligation to ensure that our producers, especially mine on the Central Coast, of many, many specialty crops, 
uh, are at the table. And as, as many of you have heard me say, and it's the first full, well, second hearing uh, in which we're having at this Agriculture Committee, uh, I can say people know that I come from the salad bowl of the world. Uh, and therefore, we have a number of specialty crops. And so, uh, obviously, those types of producers have been progressive when it comes to maintaining and preserving the earth that they use to produce their fruits and vegetables. And so, um, I want to just focus on Mr. Brown, uh, Mr. Brown right now. Obviously, when it comes to specialty crops, I know you're from North Dakota. My wife's from North Dakota, up in rugby. Uh, there's not many specialty crops up there. But when it comes to specialty crops, are you? Uh, what type of smart agricultural efforts are there when it comes to the concern for the climate crisis? The same principles apply whether we're doing specialty crops, lettuce, salads, vegetables, fruits. We're working uh, extensively in California, working with your growers. I'm sure some of them are, and the technologies they're using are these technologies to uh, use these principles in order to lower their input costs. And they can do that, you know, there was a previous comment that it takes six years to recoup the cost. That's not true at all. We're seeing significantly savings, a significant saving by year two, certainly by year three. So okay. the same principles apply. Okay, let me pivot to Ms. Knox, would you agree? Yeah, I think there's I think there's a lot of immediate benefit. I mean, it doesn't take a long time to to see benefits to the soil. It doesn't see a, a long time to see other benefits to uh, specialty crops. Here in here in Georgia, we're seeing people try new crops. Um, we're growing Satsuma mandarin oranges, and we're growing olives. You don't really think of Georgia as being a place to grow olives, but we do have a chance to expand into new areas that could be new markets. Um, to take advantage of that. Um, but growing them regeneratively is definitely going to help the producers in the long run because it will reduce the number of inputs. Thank you. And speaking of Georgia, let me say hello to my, my friend, uh, President Duvall. Uh, obviously, uh, let, me, let me first acknowledge uh, the fact that uh, he understands that the number one issue of agriculture right now is labor uh, and how important that is. However, we do have to deal with this climate crisis as well. And so uh, President Duvall, Tell me how the American Farm Bureau um, has reached out to our specialty crop producers to ensure that they're at the table as well when it comes to uh, coming up with a solution or the many solutions that we have to come up with for dealing with the climate crisis in, in the field of uh, agricultural production. Well, Congressman, I, ever since I've been at American Farm Bureau, I have encouraged inclusiveness. That means all kind of agriculture, all genders, all races to come to the table because you know it's our job and our mission to be provide one united voice of the american farmer how can we do that without them, all of them being there so I, we've been pretty successful and talking to specialty say look we're, we're not here to just represent big agriculture but we need you to come to the table and give us your ideas and that's what we're trying to do thank you look forward to being at the table with you uh, president duval thank you Chair. i yield back Thank you. Are there any other are, are there any Republicans uh, in uh, that I can't see that need to be recognized? Okay, then we'll move on to the general lady from Iowa, uh, Ms. Uh, Axney. You are recognized. Five minutes. 
Thank you, Chairwoman, and uh, thank you to Chairman Scott uh, just for holding this hearing that's so important. It's such a pressing issue, and really appreciate our witnesses being here today to share your expertise. I very much appreciate the testimony given and the discussions around how much our environment's been affected by climate change and how substantial that cost has been. Jim, you noted in your testimony uh, the increasing number of climate events that result in costs exceeding a billion dollars and what a shocking uh, 22 events last year. But unfortunately, as you mentioned, uh, those events have become all too common for folks uh, back in my home state of Iowa. We're the ones who had the derecho uh, sweep across our state. And when Iowans don't know what a storm should be called, it's definitely something out of the ordinary. And of course, we saw millions of farmland destroyed, left hundreds of thousands of Iowans without power. And then just a year prior to that, um, in southwest Iowa, in my district, uh, we saw devastating flooding along the Missouri River, which destroyed homes and farmland up and down the river. And honestly, we simply cannot afford to accept that these events are the norm, and we have to take action on this climate crisis to reduce our carbon emissions and build up resiliency so that our farmers can be successful. So my first question is to uh, you, Mr. Brown. Thank you so much for sharing with the committee the successes that you and others have experienced as a result of sound soil health practices. And I was reading your written testimony. I was taken by the story of Mr. Adam Grady uh, from North Carolina. Two weeks after uh, waters receded from Hurricane Florence, Mr. Grady was already seeding his fields. Uh, like Mr. Grady, farmers in Iowa are facing increasing challenges combating excess moisture each year as a result of more frequent wet, wet springs. Mr. Brown, can you just take a moment to describe how the soil health practices uh, can help farmers adapt to floods and a changing climate more broadly? Well, thank you. That is an excellent question. And I'm going to hold up this jar to signify this is actually soybean seed in a jar. But think of it as, as soil aggregates. So a soil aggregate is just like one of these seeds. It's a, it's a little pad of sand, silt, and clay bound together. Water, your infiltration rates of water depend on those soil aggregates. A soil aggregate will only last about four weeks, and then new ones need to be built. In order to build new ones, you have to have soil biology. You have to have mycorrhizal fungi. We were holding a soil health academy there in southeastern Iowa, and they were bragging about the very rich soils of eastern Iowa. Unfortunately, they had a half of an inch of rain, and that water could not infiltrate. You mentioned the flooding problems we're seeing along the Missouri Mississippi rivers uh, here in North Dakota, the Red River. Year after year, we combat that. All what we need to do to alleviate that is build soil aggregates. We can help our, alleviate our flooding, alleviate those costs that occur year after year, as you said, to society if we focus on the resiliency of our soils. We are not doing that anymore. I travel extensively, all 50 states, and I have taken soil test after soil test after soil test that shows that we no longer have the ability to infiltrate water. In 2009, we had a major rainfall event on my ranch. We had 12.6 inches of rain in six hours. The next day, I could go out in my fields and drive across them with the tractor and not leave a rut. It's all about biology and building back resiliency through soil health. In Iowa, they can certainly do that with the wonderful resources you have there. 
Well, I appreciate that, and it's inspiring to hear this, and thank you. As, as your work as a farmer and educator takes you around the country, as you mentioned, what do you think are some of the biggest reasons that you hear from farmers that prevent them from adopting these soil health practices, and what technical and financial resources do you think are needed for us to encourage to scale adoption of these practices? That's a wonderful question, one I get asked daily. Number one, Reen, is fear. Farmers and ranchers it's fear of the unknown, you know? Again, it goes back to education. The second is, is the current farm program. The current farm program, I'm sorry, but it is not conducive to adopting these practices. We make small steps through NRCS and that, but then the production model is wrong. We're on a path through risk management agency where the crop seeded revenue insurance determines 95% of what farmers and ranchers plant. Because they have to obtain operating money, operating uh, notes from the bank in order to stay in production that year, that bank's gonna tell them you have to take part in this program, and then you have to plant those crops that'll allow you the greatest return through risk management. Don't get me wrong, we need crop insurance, we need risk management, but it has to be changed. Thank you. I want to uh, recognize uh, now the uh, gentleman lady from Florida, Ms. Um, Kama. You're recognized for five minutes, ma'am. Thank you so much and, and good afternoon. I'd like to thank the witnesses for hanging in there on this long hearing today and appearing before the committee. I'd also like to start thanking or by asking everyone who has had a meal today to please thank a farmer. While we have this important discussion about the environment, climate and US agriculture, it is important to remember that the realities already facing our farmers are pretty grim. Growers in my home state of Florida and those throughout the country continue to face a number of challenges to remain competitive in the face of rising foreign imports. These imports are not grown under the same high environmental standards adhered to by U.S. producers, including standards for air, water, solid and hazardous waste, not to mention the labor standards. This conversation about where, about what more farmers need to do in order to protect our environment becomes a bit trivial, in my opinion, when our farmers are forced to add to food waste because they can't compete with cheaper imports. As I just saw last week in South Florida when our producers had to disc up crops simply because they could not compete with cheap imports. The disparities when it comes to labor, regulatory and environmental standards have left our producers at a tremendous and devastating disadvantage. So I'd like to start out with uh, Mr. Duvall. Thank you for being here with us. Uh, for the record, if you can, and in one word, from what you've seen, which country produces on a large scale the highest quality agricultural products with the lowest environmental impact? The United States of America. I love that answer. And as a follow-up to that, Mr. Duvall, and in the same format, in terms of inequitable competition, which country poses the largest threat to American agriculture? In your area, Mexico. Thank you. As far as dumping product into your state. Absolutely. Thank you. Ms. Knox, you mentioned in your testimony that the environmental impact that the clearing of land has on the release of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere uh, I, I want to ask, do you agree that it is more environmentally conscious to support our local producers here in the United States rather than foreign producers held to looser regulations? I think 
supporting local farmers is always an important thing to do. And, you know, it minimizes the cost of transportation, uh, helps support the local economy. And so I, I and, and they, they really are more responsibly in a lot of ways because we are more strict about our regulations. And so I really support local farmers because of that. Excellent. Thank you, Ms. Knox. And I'd have to say go Gators just because, well, you know why. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Mr. Brown, as you know, many American farmers are ready and willing to participate in carbon sequestration and implement regenerative agriculture. I've seen a clear desire to embrace these practices in my home state of Florida. However, I have also seen um, farmers frustrated by the prohibited costs associated with implementation. In my district alone, we have producers that are forced to spend anywhere from uh, the, to the tune of $300,000 just to participate in a carbon sequestration program. In your opinion, how can we make carbon sequestration and other green infrastructure investments more affordable for America's producers? Well, they should not be participating in that program if it's costing that. It's, it's about much more than carbon. Farmers and ranchers need to be paid for all ecosystem services. We're talking about carbon, but it's much more than that. It's clean air, clean water. It's taking nutrients out of the watersheds, holding them onto the farm where they belong. The way to do that is using the USDA programs to incentivize best use practices and to educate those farmers and ranchers. Thank you. And uh, Mr. Schellenberger, uh, you have done a tremendous amount of research and work developing your book, Apocalypse Never. Since I have about 40 seconds left on the clock, I'd like to give you my remaining 30 seconds to give an elevator pitch as to why people should read your book and what the biggest takeaway is. Oh, thanks for asking. I mean, the point, the argument of the book is that uh, climate change is real, but it's not our biggest environmental problem. Um, Our biggest environmental problems uh, stem from the inefficient use of land, particularly in poor countries. And, you know, if I had more time, I would have described all the work that I think American farmers can do to extend the innovative, efficient and productive kinds of agriculture that we've developed here to poor and developing countries, because that's really what matters in terms of protecting uh, natural ecosystems and lifting everybody out of poverty, which are goals that I think we all share. Thank you so much. You. And uh, Mr. Cantori, I'm sure I'll see you in Florida later this year. And with that, I yield back. Thank you. The gentleman from Florida, Mr. Lawson, you recognize five minutes, sir. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. And I'll try to go uh, real quickly. Uh, my question is going to be for Mr. Duval. Uh, Mr. Duval, my district in North Florida, the home of so much of the state's uh, timber industry and working fires. Hurricane Michael in 2018 really plummeted our area of agriculture, delivering $1.2 billion in damage to timber. So I'm interested in policy that could incentivize uh, and reforestation uh, and, and timber production, which could especially help producers at catastrophic events such as hurricane. Uh, can, you tell, can you talk about the merit of uh, intensifying sustainable practices on these lands and their contribution to our overall goal of mitigating climate change. Yeah, the the forest uh, around our country contribute uh, huge help to uh, solving the problems of climate change. And we all know the trees are the biggest sequestrator 
uh, that of, of any forage that's out there, any, any uh, plant that's out there. Uh, so uh, you're exactly right. Uh, you know, to incentivize people to be more in in, ag uh, in agriculture in the forestry area, we got to make it profitable again. You know, the only way you can make a living with forestry is to have tens of thousands of acres, and not all the farmers have that. Not very very few have that. And uh, uh, you know, the management tools that they use, uh, our state uh, forestry units are are kind of com uh, confined with the, the resources. Uh, there's not enough money there to help people go out and put technicians to go out and help them put those practices on the ground, whether it be state or federal. Uh, but I think that would be a huge help if USDA could help assist that. You come to your part of the country, my part of the country, we don't have forest fires because we manage our timber. We burn off that fuel. We make sure that, that fuel is not there to harm our, all the homes that are around it. And management in forestry is vitally important, not just to uh, to being productive and not burning, but it's also uh, important to uh, sequestering carbon. Okay, thank you very much. I mean, Knox, uh, from tomatoes and to citrus, specialty crops are critical in Florida economy. Our land grant institutions are doing great research to address these two uh, uh, to our crops. I'm concerned uh, that climate change will only make the battle more difficult. Can you please go into a bit more details regarding the potential impact that climate change would have on specialty, uh, especially on specialty crops? I think climate change will affect them in a variety of ways. I think as temperatures go up, there may be some specialty crops that are not going to grow well in Florida. Um, and they'll look for new varieties that may be able to take heat better. Um, I think they're going to also worry a little bit about um, water availability, although as I understand it now, a lot of the specialty crops in Florida are already under irrigation. Um, so there will be a question of, will there still be water available? Um, but I think that is probably not as important. Um, I think one of the, the other issues is as the growing season increases, of course, part of Florida has a year-round growing season, but other parts um, still do see frost, we're going to see increases in the number of pests. And those pests aren't only coming locally, but they're also being blown in from other places. And we don't really know yet what the weather patterns are going to do as far as the wind shifting over time. And so that is certainly something that could also be more of an issue as we get more of these pests and diseases that are blowing in and certainly affecting some of the specialty crops. Uh, thank you, Ms. Scott. That was really great to uh, to know. Uh, uh, with that, Madam Chair, I yield back. Thank you. The the um, committee will recess and call the chair. Thank you. Our committee will come back to order. We're getting round to the finish line. I can't thank everybody enough for hanging in there with us. It lets you know how serious everybody is about this very serious issue we're facing on climate change. Thank you for the tolerating our interruptions, particularly our panelists who've been with us here since 12. Great, you all really Really appreciate you. Now, we're going to finish up with our hearings. We have, uh, I believe, Ms. Fishback from Minnesota. 
You're now recognized yes, for your five minutes. Thank you so much, and I hope everyone can hear me. Uh, you know, first of all, thank you, Mr. Chair, and I would especially like to thank all of the panelists for hanging in there with us. Um, uh, it has been an interesting day of running back and forth and all kinds of other things happening here, but thank you so much for hanging out with us. Uh, you know, uh, Mr. Chair, there's no doubt that our changing weather patterns presents challenges for farmers and ag producers. Uh, but while addressing those challenges, we must do so in a way that respects the industry and recognizes their achievements protecting our environment. Adding more regulations or pushing lopsided partisan measures is not the answer. Instead, we should incentivize farmers to adopt what many of them already do through innovation and ingenuity. The soils they cultivate better protect against erosions and nutrients lost. Uh, the equipment they use is far more efficient than just a few years ago, and farmers are utilizing technology to minimize inputs and further reducing their footprint. There is a challenge that must be met without partisan agenda. All of us agree that we each have a role in protecting our environment, and farmers are some of the best stewards of our lands and resources. The farmers and producers I know want to be partners in this work but nothing meaningful will happen by enacting punitive measures that malign their hard work, and it will happen by affording them the respect they deserve. That being said, uh, Mr. Duvall, I, I firmly believe that any climate proposal that doesn't include biofuels in part of its calculus uh, is not a serious proposal. Uh, this homegrown American energy source is a vital part of my district's economy and many others of this committee. Can, can you speak a little bit to the benefits of this product in reducing our emission and where it does fit in the climate-related proposals? I'm talking about renewable energies. Yes, biofuels in particular. I'm sorry. Yes, ma'am. I mentioned earlier uh, to another question that we need to make sure that we recognize that this country went uh, and, and asked agriculture to be part of our uh, energy independent solution, and we're a piece of that pie. And the infrastructures around that is so important. About 30%, I may stand correct if I'm wrong, but I think about 30% of the corn and 30% of the soybean goes to uh, biofuels. And uh, and now we are generating enough that we can uh, even export it. Uh, it has been a tremendous lift to your part of the world and the Midwest. Uh, and it has not only helped the farmers, it has helped rural communities and kept them vibrant. And anything we do to hurt that industry is going to be devastating to that part of our country. So we would not support anything that would hurt that that infrastructure and that and and the biofuel. And, and Mr. Duvall, I appreciate that. And um, Mr. Schellenberger, uh, you know, we just touched a bit on some of the uh, the issues of broadband, and I'm just wondering if you can. Uh, uh, comment uh, on how that increased broadband connectivity uh, plays a role in the discussion and, and how it relates to the uh, precision agriculture technology. Yeah, great question. I mean, I, I totally agree that it's essential. What we've been seeing with the revolution in precision agriculture is the application of GPS and uh, high processing computers to be able to uh, take efficiencies and productivities to the next level. So. Yeah, I think it's a it's an obvious uh, obviously in the public interest to support that expansion and um, and, and and seems like a no brainer from my point of view. 
Well, and I will just comment on uh, our last uh, committee hearing I was doing, I was at dialing in remote from home and I had some connectivity issues. So it made a, it made quite the point that day, but, but um, I will yield back the remainder of my time. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And now, Mr. Randy Fentra from Iowa. Five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chair, Chairman Scott, and Ranking Member Thompson. Uh, first, I want to thank each of the witnesses uh, for their testimony today. It has been important that we discuss how farmers, ranchers, agricultural industry have already been leading the world in reducing the environmental footprint and additional opportunities that exist uh, for their continued leadership. Um, I'd like to quickly note that in Mr. Cantor's testimony, he made mention of a devastating derecho storm that impacted Iowa last year. While I believe this committee must work to understand how we can help with agriculture industry to mitigate and be resilient against disasters, we must also ensure that we provide timely relief for producers devastated by damage. And this, this is something that I have been actively working on. Uh, with that, uh, this question would be for Mr. Schellenberger. So getting back to climate change, uh, Iowa's agriculture community has been a leader in addressing climate change. Uh, I believe that biofuel production, just like Mrs. Fishbach noted, uh, and Iowa in the 4th District uh, should be, a leading, put a, be made a leading role in the efforts to reduce carbon emissions. It is also important to recognize the potential of biofuels to further reduce the carbon intensity with the potential to be net carbon negative. Let me say that again. Biofuels can make things net carbon negative, unlike electric vehicles, especially if the federal government helps companies to implement innovative technologies. Green Plains Incorporated just announced last week that three of their biorefineries, including the plant in Superior, Iowa, have entered into a carbon capture and sequestration project. In short, the project will transport CO2 from Iowa to North Dakota for the deposit in their geological storage. This will allow these biorefiners to reduce their carbon intensity by as much as 50%, comparable or lower than the other low carbon fuels available on the market today. Green Plains Incorporated cited that 45Q tax credits as being important to allowing the company to invest in these innovative technologies. So Mr. Schellenberger, I think this aligns with your testimony's theme of encouraging technological innovations as an answer to climate change instead of burdensome regulations. Could you discuss other incentives like the 45Q credit that you believe would be helpful to drive innovation in agriculture, in the agricultural industry to reduce carbon emissions? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think all of those investments are important, both for carbon sequestration and for biofuels. I think in the past we have um, oversubsidized the the production of biofuels when I think um, more targeted R and D was merited. Uh, so I haven't looked at the specific projects you mentioned, but but clearly, you know, this kind of cooperation to solve specific problems, I think, is the way to go. There's some calls that have been made for kind of generic increases of innovation that I don't think make as much sense. But I think we've seen obviously with the coronavirus vaccine and with some, you know, the shale gas revolution, 
nuclear power, some you know, ge uh, genetically modified seed technologies, that when we have a specific um, objective that we're trying to achieve, that the public and private sector can come up with some really remarkable innovations. So I, I think that those are all great directions to be going in. Yeah, thank you, uh, Mr. Schomburg. So uh, if you could just address a little more, so would it be beneficial? I mean, you think of biofuels, and if you could make something net carbon negative, wouldn't that be the paramount structure of what we all desire? It would. It would. I think the challenge with biofuels, as you know, we've had a challenge in terms of counting um, the carbon uh, sequestration and emissions in the past. There's been a pretty significant debate about, you know, whether clearing land for biofuels um, actually results in a net loss or a net gain of carbon emissions. So I just think it's an area that we need to proceed with some some amount of caution because I do think we've seen biofuels scaled up in, in the past that have not really panned out in terms of their benefits. So I just, I think we need to take a close look at, at, at which, of the, which of the biofuels we're using and how we're doing those calculations. Sure, but thank you. But wouldn't that be the same for electric vehicles? I think that'd be exactly what you just said would be noted for electric vehicles also. Would that be a fair statement? Absolutely, and there's a very active debate um, within the energy analysis community about whether electric vehicles are going to be the right solution or whether it would be um, hydrogen-powered fuel cell vehicles. Um, there's good arguments on both sides. I am personally agnostic about it. Um, you know, I think they have to be decided on a case-by-case -case basis. There's reasons to to think that hydrogen is the way we'll be going in the long term, but again, I just think it's a little bit too early to say. Uh, thank you for your, your comments, uh, uh, Dr. Schellenberg. I greatly appreciate them. Um, I'm still a believer that the combustion engine can do great things as long as we can provide uh, a negative carbon footprint. Uh, anyway, thank you. I yield back my time. Well, thank you so much. And let me just say how grateful and just how thankful we all are on this committee for the outpouring of help and knowledge and information accurate that will help us that you five experts have given to us today. We thank you for the time that you have put in. This has been a long and thorough hearing. But let me just tell you the great good that you all have done to this day. Because as I said in the outset, our whole thrust forward to deal with climate change must be anchored in agriculture. That, that is the major and critical thing we have established today. And that's what's important. So to you, Mr. Jim Cantori, and I think I got your name right then, senior meteorologist, and I hope I got that but pronounced, of the Weather Channel. Thank you. Thank you so very much. Miss Pamela Knox, Director of the University of Georgia's Weather Network. Thank you for your piercing insights that you gave to our committee.
And to Zippy Duvall, my good friend and fellow Georgian, president of the American Farm Bureau, thank you. You brought such great insight directly from the perspective of our farmers. They are the ones that we want to make sure our climate change is based upon making sure our farmers are not only at a seat at this table for climate change, but at the head of the table, our farmers. Mr. Gabe Brown, a Brown Ranch, the Browns family ranch from Bismarck, North Dakota. Thank you for so much. You brought such great wisdom and uh, information of which many of us were only dimly aware on this committee. Thank you for that. And uh, also, Mr. I mentioned Mr. Gay Brown from Bismarck, North Dakota, and Mr. Michael Schellenberger, President of Environmental Progress. The five of you have done a wondrous benefit, not only for this committee, but for the nation. We have received information that literally thousands of people across this country were tuned in to this hearing. And that is what is important. So from the bottom of my heart and the bottom of the heart of our agriculture committee here, we just want to say thank you and God bless you. Now I turn it over to you, ranking member, for your closing remarks. Well, thank you, Chairman. Um, thank you to our witnesses. They did a, just a tremendous job. And I have to say, an impressive turnout by our members on both sides of the aisle yeah. participating in this. I know we went long, but, but that's because it shows the passion and the interest of the members. So I, the, the, I, uh, thank you, Chairman. I thought it was an efficiently run hearing. It's just when you got that much interest, it's, and I think we're going to, yeah. We're going to have long hearings because of the commitment of the, of the members that we have on the Agriculture Committee. Uh, agriculture is the most, the United States agriculture is the most productive and, uh, and, uh, and the most successful at mitigating greenhouse gases than anywhere else in the world. You know, our goal must be a healthy environment and a healthy economy. You cannot compromise one over the other. Anything that we do needs to be both for the environment, good for the environment, and for the economy. And that, quite frankly, means the economics of our farm and ranch families. Uh, money in, in their savings accounts and their checking accounts as well. Agriculture has the solutions. U.S. agriculture has the science. And U.S. agriculture has the proven outcomes when it comes to this topic of climate. Now, our, our focus should be climate solutions that are based on science, innovation, technology, and voluntary-led uh, conservation. Uh, that defines the American agriculture. So thank you, Chairman, and I yield back. Well, thank you, and uh, before I adjourn, of course, none of this would have happened had it not been for our great staff, ranking member, and I'm 
speaking on your side and mine. They've worked night and day to pull this hearing together. And I tell you, I want to say just a big thank you to our great staff here and the Agriculture Committee for the great work that they've done. I certainly agree. They make us look pretty good. <laughs> I think so. So with that, uh, then this hearing is comes to an end. And thank you all very much for your participation. Thank you.